A century ago on the low hills along the border between the southern states and turbulent Mexico, a mystery man appeared. A man with a sad, impenetrable face. that man what was his secret it's not important and if i bothered you will you accept my apology he was pitiless in revenge quick to decide and a master of every weapon a man everybody would like to have seen dead yeah his name is Django. Django, the title of a film you'll never forget. Django. How many men you got left? You tongue-tied? Or don't want to tell me? <laughs> Too bad, Marie. Django, an audacious man of action, capable of a tender, hopeless love, which could only last a day, but a day which was worth all eternity. I'm glad I made you feel like a real woman. Very glad. I mean Django. A new, ruthless, violent film. Featuring a great new star, Franco Nero, and a great supporting cast. to the bloody pit once again we have uh whew, mark maddox returning guest mark maddox from uh, the the very wet state of florida i know you've been getting a lot of rain recently how's it going down there um it's going good uh i'll tell you this that uh with all the rain and the way my backyard uh looks um this movie tonight that we're going to go over is probably appropriate that's so. kind of where I was going with this because yeah. that's okay. The folks, the movie we're talking about tonight is uh, Django from 1966. Uh, one of the, uh, the, the, the best of the spaghetti Westerns from the sixties. I think it's very easy to say possibly, I would just say it's actually one of the best spaghetti Westerns full stop. But the, uh, the unique thing about this one, as far as, especially when it came out is the difference in the way everything looks because this is one of the muddiest freaking westerns I think I have ever seen in my life. Everything is muddy. Everything's caked in mud and filth and dirt and scum. And uh, the, the, even when even when it's even when it's not raining, it feels like it's about to rain. Um, yeah. yeah. The, the, um, the only thing I can say is 
Django, you have <laughs> and of course stepped in a mud puddle. Django. Do, do, I, I, there, there was a point past which I loved rewatching this movie, but there came a point when I realized I wanted to rewatch the movie just with an eye toward counting the number of times that uh, Sergio Corbucci, the director, focuses on his muddy ass boots. Of well, Franco Nero's yeah. muddy boots. Yeah, it's um, it, it is I. <laughs> For me, I'm wondering how, who made that straight? Who? I mean, there's a it's, a, it's got a really cool set. There's this town. I'm assuming it's a set. It's a set. Yeah, it's a set. Uh, but when you look at it and you look at all that mud going out, you know, several hundred yards, and you're like, who, who had to do all that? Who's out there going like, okay, turn it, turn the soil turn it let's get the water going and all kind of stuff i mean this wasn't a thing of convenience or of the rain and of the mud just conveniently making it this way i mean this 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 town street well hell even on the exterior far out from the from the town i mean it looks like shit gaping holes full of water and mud and everything and it looks terrible i just say forget it it. looks like a place where moving from building to building Reminds me you that know, I would be would, doing would like be, the Dr. Seuss thing, yeah, the King like, Stilts. You know, you just get on stilts and just walk over to the next. Of course, you get stuck. You'd be out there all day. As a matter of fact, some of those little pieces yeah, of wood, say, there's so much wood sticking you, up in the middle of the street, able, yeah. like these poles. That's well, probably the, what happened. People were using stilts or whatever and just got stuck and then just abandoned them right there in the street. It's It's got character. That's the point. <laughs> the movie has its own character. It. It, it it helps to separate it from the look of like you know the Sergio Leone, yes. um, the Clint Eastwood films and stuff like that. Well, yeah, and the uh, well, the thing is that dilapidated Western town that that set uh, was was uh, in Italy, uh, and it's I actually expected it to be one of the things you know because they 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 shot a lot of spaghetti westerns in Spain because of the uh, there's areas of Spain that look a lot like the desert Southwest, and so that was the natural place to go. But this this muddy ass place. I mean, originally Corbucci was upset. It didn't like the didn't like the idea of this whole place being so damn muddy and, and scummy because his initial idea was to have the uh, the entire movie set. I mean, it was already filmed kind of in winter. I mean, you can see people's breaths all the time, even inside the buildings. Yeah. And, uh, but the, uh, yeah. the the idea he had for it, the look he wanted was for it to be snowy. He wanted it, you know, the, the, to most of the sets to be, most of the exteriors to be covered in snow. And he just couldn't get that. The weather was right. not right. And he, he was, you know, he yeah. he finally accepted it. He didn't really have much choice. But then, of course, he did finally get to do the whole uh, Western and snow thing a few years later when he made uh, The Great Silence. Uh, have you ever seen that one? Uh, no. And I've heard it mentioned a lot lately. And maybe that would be fun for us to, you know, tackle sometime. I, I definitely is Kinski in that. Kyle Kinski's in that one. Yes. Yeah. He is. Uh, he is the villain, and he is. He is amazing. It's. It's a really good movie. I'm going to warn you. Uh, it has got. Uh, uh, it's got a hell of an ending. <laughs> okay. Well, I. Uh, I've heard about it recently, and I figured as many times as I've, as that's pinged me from different sources. I got this. This is. This has got to be good. Sergio Corbucci, the guy who made this, this was his first giant hit. Uh-huh. But he had made a couple of westerns before this. But really, only one of the thing, one of the westerns he made before this was really what I really consider to be, you know, pretty good, which was the film Minnesota Clay. Mm-hmm. I've heard of it, and uh, it's it's not bad actually. I think you'd like it. It's not, you know, it's not nearly as good as this movie. 
uh-huh. but it stars Cameron Mitchell, and uh, it's 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 a pretty entertaining movie. I think it's it Minnesota Clay plays like Italians trying really hard to make a Hollywood style western and doing a pretty good job. Uh-huh. And and Django, it, it's very obvious what happened, which is you know Fistful of Dollars came out, and everybody realized, oh, okay, so fuck trying to, to 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 imitate exactly what Hollywood's doing. If we do something that is much closer to the tone that uh, we kind of want to aim for here, if we try to be a bit more dark and serious, gritty, I guess would be the way to go, then we can we can leave that kind of Hollywood veneer, you know, trying to capture that Hollywood veneer, we can leave that behind and do something a little dirtier or grittier, which would be, you know, Django. But Minnesota Clay is still worth seeing to, to kind of get a taste for what, you know, what the Westerns were like that Italians were making before Fistful of Dollars came along and just kind of changed the world, you know? Right, right. Yeah. But but the uh, here's my question. Have you seen many of uh, Sergio Corbucci kind of became known as like the second, you know, the second most famous or the second, you know, most lauded Dude, spaghetti I, Western director behind I, Sergio Leone? I think this might be the only one I've seen. Oh shit! Really? Yeah, I know. It sucks. Well, that's one of the reasons. You know, when we were talking westerns the other day, and I was going through my collection, and you kind of zeroed in on this one, and I'm like, "Well, this is this is you know, uh, you know, something Rodney and I can do easily. It's 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 this kind of a movie." But I'm fairly new to this universe now. Not the Clint Eastwood aspect, not the Sergio Leone. I mean, there's that, and then I remember seeing the uh, Trinity, you know, and stuff, which is light more light fun family can almost watch that kind of stuff uh so yeah i mean i'm more than willing i mean i've i've yeah that's one of the reasons i think i started like you know talking a lot with you and tim when i first met you tim lucas when i first met you guys is that there was a whole nother world of stuff like you know to be opened up to me and let me enjoy you know in other words don't go and worry about what's at the local cinema uh, you know the new Michael Bay film that was coming out or something. <laughs> give me, give me something that I I can really sink my teeth into and is and something that I missed in my youth. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. what what are the other what are the other little jewels, the little sapphires and all that, that I didn't pick up off the ground? You know, and um, so I'm more than willing to. Yeah, I mean, and well, this, uh, this is exciting because man, there's like four or five that are worth exploring. There's, right. Uh, Navajo Joe, which was a ver- which was an early film role for Burt Reynolds, but it, which is which is pretty good, but not great. Uh, that one, I think I tell if I had known that, I think it was available recently on Netflix or Prime, and I don't know if it's still on there, but I, I would have watched it if I had yeah. known. It's it's not as good as Django, in my opinion. There are people who would probably you know there are people who will argue with me on it being kind of as good, but to be honest. There are, there are, there are three or four he made, almost in a row that are stunning. There's the Great Silence, the right. Mercenary, Compañeros, and a one that I have not yet seen called The Specialist, which just came out on Blu-ray. I picked up the Blu-ray and have not watched it yet. I've kind of been waiting for a reason to watch it, but it's just there came this thing where there for there was a string of especially the Mercenary and Compañeros, which uh-huh. are uh, which are. Uh, the next westerns that he made with Franco Nero starring in them, right? Holy crap, are they good? Well, is this is, the one, is one of the best that he ever made. Is the one we're we're talking about tonight? Is do you consider it to be his best one? Um, 
or not, or is it, or is it just depending it's, on what month it is? And you know, yeah, it's kind of like that because. Well, that's okay. What I didn't want to hear. To be that honest, watched, if, if, if you want to say, I, what I don't want to do is find out. Oh, you just watched the best one first. You know oh, what I mean? No, well, Only, some, pe- no some people what. would say that maybe you did, but at the same time, I would yeah. argue that I think I'll be honest. I think Compañeros is better, and I think the Mercenary may be better as well. Okay, uh, they're very different stories, right? Uh, but but of course, that's what makes that's what makes them so cool is that that's they are so different. The Great Silence is fantastic as well, but I have a tendency to kind of group those uh, the three Franco Nero ones together, right? Uh, just you know, just because it's it's easier that way, but yeah. the uh, they—I guess they kind of—you know—they kind of stand out that way. He also made the Hellbenders, which I don't think is as good as those others, but it's really good. That stars Joseph Cotton, and that's worth your time. Okay, uh, okay. that one I've heard of too. Yeah, yeah. Hell, Hellbenders. Uh, most of these now are on Blu-ray, which makes it really, <laughs> really easy uh, to get your hands on. I, I just, I, I, I'm one of those people that loves uh, restoration and loves Blu-ray. Um, I have watched some really good DVDs that the restoration was good and the DVD quality was good enough. Um, what was I watching? Uh, the And this is actually one I bought a long time ago, and I hadn't seen it in a while, so I popped it in, put it on the large television, but the picture held very nicely was uh, Danger Diabolic. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, with uh, Tim Lucas's commentary on it and all that stuff. And, and I was like, this looks pretty darn good on a TV this big for just being a DVD. And, and I bought it. I don't know. It wasn't 10 years ago, but it was a long time ago. And, um, uh, and so that's fine. But I just want to kind of, when I'm in my home and I'm watching something for the first time or something I really want to watch again, bad, I want to watch it on the large television set and to give myself as close to a theater experience as I can. And so I watched Django. I've watched this 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 time for this show. I've watched it three times, and, but the first time I watched it you know, on the big TV. It's a Blu-ray. It's the Blue Underground Blu-ray. Yeah. And, uh, you know, made popcorn and all that, you know, just like, you know, when I used to go see, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly at the air base in North Carolina in the early seventies, you know, had the popcorn and everything and enjoyed it. Uh, but I, you know, that's the way I am when I'm getting ready to do a podcast on something. I want to stop everything. And even if I've seen the movie a hundred times the other day, I did, uh, uh, a podcast on the Star Trek episode Balance of Terror, the first thing with the Romulans. I went in, and I put it on the huge TV, uh, the you know the, the the those new restored Blu-rays, and uh, and they're you know it's 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 the way to envelop yourself with it, so you're really giving the movie your undivided attention. And I'm watching this one, and I'm like, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff in here. Uh, and I knew that when you and I started talking, you'd be like, well, there's also this, this, and this, and, and that, that, and that, <laughs> and those, and these, and these others over here. So I'm like, cool. You know, I benefit I'll be honest, from it. I'm a, I'm a little surprised that you at least had not seen one or two, you know, like maybe the Mercenary or maybe Compañeros. But that that's kind of exciting because uh, I have to I say. Gotta be your, I get to be your lab rat. Exactly because well I haven't rewatched uh, the Mercenary or Compañeros in a few years yeah and uh, it's one of those things where it's like aha now I see now I see where we can go from here mm-hmm. and uh, like I say Hellbenders uh, that one I've I've watched more recently and uh, the, the Great Silence is uh, Great Silence will punch you right in the gut but right. uh, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's cool. Well, the thing the thing about Corbucci is he's he's one of those guys who, even once he you know got well known because of you know Django being a giant worldwide hit. Uh, yeah. The thing is, if you go back to the films that he was making in the early, even in the early sixties, he was doing you know a lot of peplum, a lot of sword and sandal, and uh, uh, at least well, I've seen a few of those, like Goliath and the Vampires and Duel of the Titans. Oh my uh, and, God! You know Goliath? Okay, okay, yeah, Goliath and the Vampires. My, I, I told this story before. I in 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 junior high school, Goldsboro, North Carolina. The teacher, he wasn't our teacher. He was the teacher across the hallway, Mister Hart. He was a 16 millimeter film collector, and every morning before school would start, his classroom was packed. He'd bring in one reel of a film, and use one of the school projectors and run one reel of a film every morning. It was like you wanted to go to school. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he would and he show Goliath and the Vampires. He would he would show uh, the Adventures of Captain Marvel. He'd show the Purple Monster Strikes. He'd show oh, wow. uh, he showed Gone with the Wind. He showed uh, the uh, Court Martial of Billy Mitchell. He came in one day with a special lens to put on the projector, and made us put sheets across the front of the of the um, uh, the class. And he put on in in with the, with this lens. He put on uh, Roger Corman's uh, The House of Usher. Oh, to get the widescreen. Yeah, the yeah. widescreen. And man, that damn class was screaming. I mean, like at the end when she comes up out of the coffin with her hands all ripped up and shredded and strangled. I mean, the thing was screaming. The principal stuck his head in, saw what we were watching. At first, he didn't know what the hell he was hearing, and then went like, and he goes, oh, okay, and then went back out. But the um, but. It wasn't even the first month or two that I knew this guy, uh, you know, and he was like us. He went to conventions and everything like that. He met famous people at the time that are long gone, people that, you know, like you and I see somebody famous and then five years later they're gone and we're sad. This is like people in the 1970s and the early 1970s that he oh, was wow. meeting. So he's he's and he brings and the guy goes, oh, that was so cool. Goliath versus the vampires. And we actually asked him to run the last reel the next day. In other words, don't, <laughs> don't bring in another film, bring in, put in the last half because you know, there's, is it Gordon Scott? Is that him? Is that the, is that the hero in that one? The muscle man? I, I, I can't remember if it's him or whatever, but he's there. And then there's this like, Oh uh, yeah, it was Gordon Scott. Yeah. yeah, uh, a, a duplicate, the, 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 a duplicate yeah. of him and they're fighting or whatever. And finally, like this, his head gets, his mask gets ripped off. And there's this, it's Gordon Scott with a big vampire mask with these fangs and all this kind of stuff. And they're like, you know, the one guy throws a big uh, giant, like chunk of stone at this other guy and he breaks it, like bringing his arm up in the air Man, the class was just eating it up, and you know, so so that was Corbucci, huh? Yeah, yeah. Goliath and Goliath and the vampires. But here's the thing: he made uh, out of, out of those peplums he made. There's one that uh, you can get it. You can buy it from Warner Archives on a really good looking DVD. They haven't Blu-rayed it yet, but it's either called uh, it's a movie called either The Slave or The Son of Spartacus, and uh, stars Steve Reeves, and right. that movie kicks ass i mean it is so freaking good okay okay i'll have to i mean i've got it you, you and i seriously it's funny everybody listening to the show knows you and i know each other but it's like <laughs> after the show or sometime on another day when we're not actually i gotta sit down and like we gotta i gotta start writing stuff down to start picking up you know so that oh, we right can yeah. 
yeah, we can do some of this because just like all of a sudden you're useful to me. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> There's a purpose to knowing me. Rodney, that's why. <laughs> it was divine intervention. Well, here's some oh. more movies to look at. <laughs> here's some stuff that's really cool. Here, check it out. Yeah. <laughs> Holy Jesus so. Yeah. But I, I will warn you of one thing, though. Once the, uh, whew, man, once the '70s come along, he uh, he does what a lot of Italians do. He he always he'd always kind of every now and then made a comedy. Right. Uh, let's just say Italian comedies, for me at least, do not travel well. So uh, mm. by the time he got to, uh, oh, well, let's just say you may have heard of a film called Super Fuzz. Oh yeah. Hell, I remember that was uh, what was it? It was Super Cops uh, was the American film, and then yeah. I guess what was that? Their ripoff version of it, Super Fuzz. Well, it's or Super Fuzz it is is Terrence Hill, you know, kind of you know sure. once the Trinity once the Trinity thing had tapped out, uh, it's it, he gets uh, he he he's a cop somewhere in Florida. I think it was filmed in Florida too. Huh. Uh, he gets he gets uh, some red powder on him from a nuclear explosion and gives him superpowers. And it is dumb as a bag of, of hammers. I mean, it's just, oh, yeah. God, it's stupid. Ernest Borgnine gets dragged along on this thing. It's it's. Hey. Let me ask you something. There was one that it was a ripoff of Herbie the Love Bug, and it was, a, it was a super, it was a VW, and I think it was Italian. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe yeah, I'm wrong. Probably. Who knows? And it was like the, the, the thing, the, 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 the VW spread its tires and went up. A, a wall in an alleyway. It's like the tires went up both sides on both walls on both sides of the alleyway and rolled up it. Yeah, it was. Okay. Yeah, there was some of that stuff where you're sort of like, eh. It was cute for little kids. I mean, I was probably. Yeah, I mean, it's a, that's just it. It's a kids' movie at best. And ten or ten know. or twelve years old kind of thing. And and uh, I, you know, I mean, I've always been a kind of a. Uh, I've always liked stuff more grim. There's people that look at me sometimes and go, I mean, this doesn't mean I don't like comedies. I love a good comedy. But I'm, if you really look at like my film collection, 95% of it is dramatic. No, maybe even more, like 98, 97% is serious, you know, whether it's drama or horror or science fiction or whatever. But, um, well, I mean, I got a question for you though. Here's the thing: is he, when one of the reasons why something like Django and the spaghetti western genre in general appeals to me is that I I kind of like my westerns to be, you know, fairly dark and brutal yeah. past past a certain point. What you know sure. in the in the thirty you know the thirties forties and fifties. We, you know, I, I Destry rides again, or you know, well, you got John kinda... Ford, you got John Ford movies, and and I'll I'll tell yeah. you this: if you really look at like the Searchers or Red River, they're pretty dark too. But they're, 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 they're that's, they're that's so... when they start to get dark. Yeah, exactly. Or the Jimmy but, Stewart we were talking about. You and I were talking about oh, yeah, the, like the, the Anthony River Mann and... movies and stuff, where yeah. Jimmy Stewart's really intense, and that's fine. But then we get to this new world of uh, the Italian Western. And things get wilder. They get um, uh, almost. Oh, I'm going to say this too with the uh, with the uh, Clint Eastwood ones, with the uh, Sergio Leone ones. They get almost James Bondian in a way. The 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 this, the incredible things that guys get away with, and all that kind of stuff. It's it's almost fantastical, but at the same time. Death and people being killed is very brutal in comparison yeah. to the American gunfight in the street. 
you know. Uh, exactly, and that's and that's kind of the thing is is I <laughs> some of the, some of the first westerns I ever saw were the you know the the, the dollars trilogy. All you mm-hmm. know, yeah. so mm-hmm. and and I watched and rewatched the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly so many times that there was a period of time when I mean I owned it on VHS way back when owning something on VHS was. Right. You know, uh, a substantial thing, right? And it's one of those. It's one of those things that set the tone for how how I like my westerns to be. Sure. And I have to say, for for instance, I'm I'm not a big comedy western fan. For me, the the comedy westerns are there's Blazing Saddles, mm. and then nothing else even comes close. Everything else is a, a weak weak thing that just does not work most of the time. And, well, I mean, for me, God, comedy. I they're probably. I will say this: there's a there's a, there is a comedy movie I love. I watch it with my kids all the time. We can quote it. I don't know if you'd call it in the same vein. It's that that weird '70s sort of thing, but I love it. I love it tremendously. And then the what? rest of them, I don't know what to say. It's like you know, and I'm not even a fan of Blazing Saddles. I find it to be sort of sort of just dirty humor. I mean, for oh, me, I, it, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's hilarious. I think it's fantastic, but I, I do think I, there is no other, in it. What, what is this, what is this other comedy Western? What is this other oh, comedy Western? I will say this, about? Siskel and Ebert both gave it a good review, but nobody talks about it anymore. Uh, I think it's wonderfully directed. I love the scenery. I love the what cast. The cast is tremendous. It's called, it's uh, Jack Nicholson's Going South. Going south. Oh, oh, oh! You know, I wouldn't even. I don't know that I would necessarily call that a western comedy. I would almost call it a western with some comedic elements. That's a good film. You're right. I love it. I think. Yeah. I mean, I sit there. I can quote that thing. You know. Uh, you know, it's like uh, it's just to the point where it's almost insane. You know, how about a little dessert? You know, <laughs> it's like wait till the Domine Gain sisters get a load of me. Senor Moon. I mean, I just, I mean, the cast in that is unbelievable. Oh, yeah. The kids love it. As a matter of fact, one night we had watched it like a few months earlier, and then all of a sudden it was on Netflix. But you could tell they had they had done their restoration. I don't know if it's on Blu-ray or whatever, but it was a really nice copy. I start, I put it on, and we watched the horse pass out when he goes over into Mexico and starts laughing at John Belushi and them. And then the horse mm-hmm. passes out, and the kids are like. And I just put it on for a minute to see if it was restored copy. And the kids go, just just let it keep going, Dad. Just let it keep running. And <laughs> we loved play, it. Yeah. We loved it again. One of our favorite, absolute favorite lines is when Nicholson's not happy about his old criminal buddy showing up. Jack Nicholson goes, oh, I was so hoping I'd hear from you again. And the guy goes, well, you damn sure got your wish, didn't you? And then Nicholson goes, I damn sure did. Me and James go around that all the time, just with each other. Did you get your wish, son? I damn sure did, Daddy. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just a, it's hilarious. But yeah, comedy westerns. I will say this: I, I went back and tried to watch some of the stuff that was hugely popular, the uh, Trinity stuff, and it don't, it don't work for me. I think I back then it the really Trinity. St- I, I, this may be, you know unpopular opinion but i've never been able to enjoy the trinity films you had I just to be, i think you had to be there at that time i think at the time it was different i think i think it was family pretty family friendly not re- completely but but it was like uh, you know it was like yeah. if, if the good the bad and the ugly had was a comedy or something almost but nowadays it's too far gone it's too many years for people to be picking it up 
at this at this age, except for maybe the 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 purists of uh, you know who know all about all that stuff. Um, whereas something like the dramas or the near dramas or the fantastic, you look at you know fistful of dollars, few dollars more. I mean, those movies they've got so much to give you. Yeah. When I when I watch them, I mean, I, I I don't know. You know, somebody goes, "Well, what's your favorite of the three? Well, for me, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I know that's like, what's your favorite James Bond film? To an old guy, it's always Goldfinger. It's sort of like the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly was the one that brought it to this country with an explosion, and then they kind of ran back real quick and grabbed the first two, and then and then uh, and then really pushed those on the American public. Isn't that right? It wasn't it. Well, wasn't no, it? Fistful, Fistful did come out here in '65 and did very well, but I mean. That, well, that's one of the things. Did you? I mean, did you take notice of the fact that Django and Fistful of Dollars are kind of telling a variation on the same story, which is the same story they kind of stole from Yojimbo? That that is exactly what I was going to say. When I'm watching it, it's like the stranger comes to town, but then it takes a it takes a, a, a dramatic left or a dramatic right, whatever in in Django, where he's kind of already got his situation figured out. Yohimbo comes in, assesses the the situation, or Clint Eastwood comes in and goes, what's the deal here? How can I get this to work to my advantage? Django's already come with a plan. With that well, he's, he's coming. He's coming back to this place because we we do find out that um, the nearby cemetery holds the the body of this woman that he was in love with years before, back mm-hmm. before the war, and so what we have here is a man who uh, is coming back with a purpose. Now yeah. you know he's not above you know taking a shit ton of money out of this place along with wreaking his vengeance. Right. But at the same time. That is a that is a bit more than is involved than the man with no name and a fistful of dollars riding into town, you know, realizing that there are two warring factions that are turning this town into pure a pure hellhole, and deciding, well, I can make money off one and then switch sides and make money off the other and then get away. And of course, you know, that doesn't quite go to plan in in any version of this film that you may see. So this, of course, it's a great story. It's just you know the, the story originally comes from. Uh, Dashiell Hammett's novel, Red Harvest. That's where uh, Kurosawa got it uh, and adapted it into the Samurai's picture. And then, of course, every variation from there is probably... I think it's funny to I think it'd be funny to, to like draw the line. It's like, okay, so we know Kurosawa knew the, the Hammett novel. But I, but we, but we were not sure if Sergio Leone or Sergio Corbucci knew the Leone no, knew the uh, knew the novel, or if they just knew Yojimbo, or uh-huh. Anybody later on who makes a variation on it, we don't know if what they're looking at is either Fistful of Dollars or Django or backing up to Yojimbo, but is anybody really going back to the original source, which is the novel? And then, of course, you know, you wait until uh, the early 90s, you actually get an adaptation of the novel uh, Red Harvest uh, in the period in which it was, you know, in the period and place that it was set, which is uh, called Last Man Standing, one of uh, Walter Hill's... uh, badass action movies the, the the story is so i i i don't know it's such an odd story it's when you when you describe it to someone which is you know man from you know in general man with no connection to a, t- uh, a town uh comes to town finds that two warring factions are making the place a hellhole decides to make money off of uh one side and then the other things go badly and essentially, he either survives or doesn't. Usually, he survives, but he's much the worse for wear. 
it's the variations on that that tell you whether or not they're playing with it in some unique way or with, with how much uh, how much they set within the story uh, and change things around. You know, what do they keep? What do they throw away? And the, the beauty of this is that it is such a basic story, but what's weird is how universal it is. It almost seems to be a story that can be, I mean, it, it can be made in any language during any time period. I mean, you, you, you can dress it up, you can pare it down, you can add all types of detail, you can, you can, you can do all kinds of things with the story, and yet it is not one of the, when you describe the story to someone, it is not a story that people would immediately go, oh, yeah, 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 I've seen that a hundred times, but you probably have. Yeah. It's not, you know, the boy meets a girl, boy loses girl, boy wins girl back, or, you know, whatever variation of that might be for a certain type of story. And it's also not the it's not a man on a mission thing either, because there is no mission. This guy is an opportunist. In almost every one of these stories, he's an opportunist. Yeah. And so it's it's absolutely fascinating that a film well, I should say, a story that doesn't fit the parameters of kind of the, the standard uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as soon as you as soon as you get the gist of the plot, you kinda know what the deal is. It's that way, but it is not one of those things that's obvious from the outset because I guarantee you could sit somebody down and show them Fistful of Dollars for the first time, and then they might not cop to the realization that they have probably seen this same plot multiple times in other films, you know, set in modern day with, you know, cops and criminals, or set in, you know, God knows when. Yeah, um, oddly enough, Red Harvest is the only Dashiell Hammett novel I've ever read uh, and it wasn't on purpose because of these films. I mean, I read it when I was like a teenager, and uh-huh. and, and enjoyed it. Um, the movies that were that that we're discussing, you know, outside of uh, of actual Django, is that the guy comes in, and you even see it. I mean, Toshiro Mifune's persona in this in in the movie Yohimbo is that he walks into town. He's a guy that's needs food needs money needs a place to sleep all that kind of stuff but is he's an opportunist but he's also a guy that knows how to play people off of each other and what he does is he goes over and kicks two ant nests let them fight and then reaps the benefit of it and and that's the same thing that happens in in uh fistful of dollars um, you know, we can sit there and go, well, they so-and-so did it first. You can it, Sometimes, actually, people say it like the Magnificent Seven and the Seven Samurai. It's like, it'd be one thing if you made the, the, the Seven Samurai and the Magnificent Seven came out and it sucked. Well, it doesn't suck. It's a great movie. And these guys borrowing from each other and doing variations of a theme is totally fine. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love all these films that we're discussing. Um, Django is the one where the guy comes into town. I don't know if Corbucci did that on purpose. He was consciously thinking of it. So, yeah, let's go ahead and pretend like this is the beginning of Yohimba, but then let's take a turn. Because when he pulls the hell, the lid, let, let me, for, for the audience, the movie starts off with him dragging a coffin through mud. Now, I, I'm watching this. I'm going, Jesus Christ we have no idea how long this guy's been dragging this coffin through the mud, yeah, through the rain, far, and all this sort of stuff. Or how far, how many miles, yeah. Is it, is it, you know, is it 10 miles a day? Is it five miles? I mean, what is it? You know, 
and nobody knows what's inside the coffin and all this kind of stuff. And he even shows up like in the bar and he gets a drink and he gets into a fight with some people and all this other kind of stuff. But he's got this coffin and nobody's really curious or they're they're curious as to what's in it, but nobody really wants to lift the lid. They're, they're kind of like, oh, God, I don't want to see a corpse in there. Well, I mean, I think uh, any, any sane person would be afraid to because this guy is clearly deadly with a pistol. So. Right. Well, or also, too, what are you going to find when you open it up? Is it his dead friend? Is it his dead wife? You know, what's the deal with this thing? You're curious, but you're not really wanting to investigate too much. So he's... He's there with this, and he gets into uh, uh, you know a scrap with um, these guys that show up in town. They're sort of like now, he, but I'll, we'll talk. I'll talk about. It. He gets into a scrap with these guys and all kind of stuff, and knowing that they're going to come back, he wants them to come back on purpose. This this lead villain that he's slapped around his boys and and all this kind of stuff, and the guy shows up, comes back with a whole troop, and. Django drags this coffin out in the street behind this huge log conveniently placed gets behind he's sitting there waiting for them to show up they show up he flips the lid off the coffin and there's an old style uh, machine gun I don't know if you call it a Gatling gun or whatever it is but it's an old style machine gun and he just basically mows down a colossal amount of this guy's henchmen which, yeah, more than more than forty people. <laughs> yeah, you just mowing them down and all that kind of stuff. It, well, we do know at this point the the, the movie's taken a radical change from Yohimbo. Yeah, this yeah, guy. Because this is this is this is not something that happened in uh, the previous pre, previous previous versions of this story. Nobody somehow decided to just wipe out most of one side of it himself. In right. the, in previous versions of this story, the the uh, stranger who wanders into town makes it uh, makes it possible for such a thing to happen, but it's done by the other side. We haven't even been introduced to the other side yet. Yeah. And, okay, so here's my question. Um, I, I think of uh, the movie Tombstone, a movie uh, that I really love. I think of the movie Outlaw Josie Wales. I think of some of these films where there's guys that wear, are either wearing red sashes, wearing red... Uh, um, uh, you know, not ma- masks or whatever over their heads. Things yeah. where there's a thing called a red leg or a red sash or whatever they're called. In this movie, it's guys with these, you know, most of them are putting them over their head, but some guys wear it around their neck. Like uh, a scarf? Yeah, red scarf. Is is that all tied together between all of these or is that just a coincidence? No, that is a uh, well. I don't know if one influenced the other, but it is historically accurate. There were, yeah. uh, there were, you know, the, the, these these groups of men would uh, would wear something to identify themselves uh, as part of uh, you know one crew or another, and uh, it often was something you know bright, you know bright and you know bright and red. That that was that was not uh, that was definitely something that that's historically accurate. That would be something that. Uh, uh, you can read about, uh, you know, Tombstone got that uh, directly from the history. You know, that's straight out of the history books. So, yeah, this is something where uh, they make it even creepier here, where these guys are wearing, you know, wearing this red cloth as a as a as like a, a damned uh, Ku Klux yeah. Klan hood in a way. It's weird. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. If you're a coffin maker, sure did pick a good town to settle. Sure did. I haven't had many clients so far. Well, don't worry, you will. 
What with Hugo's Mexican renegades and the rebels under Major Jackson, fighting their own private war, why, this whole town's been ruined. It's a dead city. Regular ghost town. So your girls are pleasuring phantoms? Well, I wouldn't say that. Sometimes there's Hugo's Mexicans and sometimes there's Major Jackson's men. You know how it is. We try to please them both if we can. How do you do that? Well, there's an agreement of sorts. Round here's neutral. Well, one of the hallmarks of a spaghetti western, or at least the really good ones, are the clever plot twists. And sometimes I wouldn't even call them necessarily plot twists, but they're really just plot reveals. They're uh, bits of information that uh, advance the story in a strange direction and kind of... It's it's kind of... Uh, I, at one point years ago, I described it as a spaghetti western being somewhat like watching someone else play pinball. It can be pretty fun, and uh, sometimes... You kind of wonder how that's going to work out or whether maybe putting a little too much English on that particular subject is going to turn out strange somewhere down the road. But the cleverness of how these things bounce off of each other is is one of the real joys of my favorite spaghetti westerns. Of course, you can see that very clearly in uh, something like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly where there are just all these things that all revolve around people attempting to either save their asses or get some, you know get over on somebody or uh, get some advantage, or you know, find a way to steal money or whatever. And here, there, there are all these hidden little things, and of course, the big one being the the hidden <laughs> the hidden machine gun in the in the in the coffin, which happens about you know thirty or thirty five minutes into the movie, mm-hmm. completely changing the tone and uh, of the story and how it goes forward. But then also, uh, like I said, we we have him mow down. I'm sorry, it's Major Jackson. And then we, you know, after that that go round, we then have the uh, the Mexican contingent because this this town is sitting right on the Mexican border. We have uh, Hugo uh, Rodriguez roll into town, and and uh, then the story reveals that they've known each other because they met each other in prison years before, and so they're actually buddies, which gives you another twist into how these characters are going to interact with each other and how things might go forward. And of course, the 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 real you know, secondary further twist is that, of course, he's using his friendship with this Mexican bandit, essentially, to rob the uh, the Major Jackson character. Right. And uh, then he intends to rob the the gold that they get from his buddy that he got to know in prison as well. And, of course, things don't go well. And it's it's these reveal after reveal after reveal. In other words... The plot, like I say, I don't know if it, I, I don't know that I would necessarily refer to them as twists. They certainly aren't twists. They're just hidden agendas and hidden 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 movements within the motivations of the various characters. And uh, the the joy of watching some of these is just how are these things going to play out? Uh, how are they going to justify not just outright murdering a character that's central to the story? Who's gonna, who's going to live? Who's going to die? What's 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 going to happen? How are we going to get to a point where? Uh, there's some kind of semblance of uh, retribution meted out to the people who actually deserve it, mm-hmm. and, and as opposed to just the the kind of hideous violence. I mean, let, let's let's talk a little bit about the violence in this movie. Um, it's good. This, <laughs> it's really good violence. Okay, <laughs> I guess that's the end of our discussion on the violence in this film. Thank you, Goodbye. everyone. No. Good night. <laughs> well, no. Um, the, the, I mean, it does have a couple of moments that I think. Definitely went over the line for the mid '60s, and the biggest one of those. I, I'm going to tell scene. you when I when I first saw this film, I thought it was a 1972 movie. 
That was my guess yeah. in my yeah. head. And then I go back and it's like 1966. And I'm like, no, no, that's a typo. That's how that's it. It, it is. I don't want to say shocking. It's shocking. how It's surprising, though. It really is. I'm like, there's stuff in this movie for that time period. I mean, you know, the James Bond, the good, the bad. And the other. I mean, there's there's yeah. stuff in here that's like this really I don't think there's any nudity in the movie. There's no. there's there's near nudity, but not real nudity. But the violence is straight on R rated. And when you think about, um, I'm thinking about stuff that that, that I've uh, uh, that um, you know, like uh, you know, recently doing the, a podcast on Theater of Blood because of the loss of Dame Diana Rigg, a great loss. Yeah, uh, that movie was rated R. And yet, I look at Django, uh, four or five, six, five, se- five or six seven, years earlier, yeah, seven, seven years, seventy-three, and yet Django to me is in, in some ways more violent. I mean, uh, you've got. Uh, I don't want to jump to the. Are we doing this in linear, or does it matter? No, Can wait, we jump? No, around? no, not no, not at all. Talk talk about it as you wish, because I want you know I want to talk about several different bits of uh, several different bits within it. I I don't know what you're about to jump to though. Well, I'm I'm fixing to jump to Django getting his hands bashed in. Oh yeah. yeah. At the end by his friend who uh, he was a friend. He didn't have you know, a friend, sort of you know who who wasn't going to kill him. But basically, was going to leave him incapacitated by by having another guy bash his hands to pulp, and they and the blood, and the the bashed up fingers, and him trying to work them to fire a gun later, and everything is really R rated to me. Um, it's pretty rough the, stuff. Well, I mean, the R rating wasn't even in then at the time. Nope. Uh, and uh, there's that. There's the beating of the woman at the beginning. Uh, yeah, the, the whipping scene, yeah. The, the shooting, yeah, whipping. <laughs> what happens to this poor slob? She's out there. These guys grab her at the very beginning of the film. Django shows up and goes, hey, what's this? And they, they take her and they tie her to, the, the, to, to a portion of this bridge and they're beating her. Then those guys get shot. And then these other guys show up and they go, well, we're going to burn you. You know, for being with the guys that were beating yeah. you. It's like, wow, this is a... Yeah, what a great week I'm having here, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and then Django comes in and shoots those guys, you know, with the pew, 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 pew. Uh, that's at the beginning, but you've got the machine gun mowing people down. Well, I would got- say he structures this. He structures this interestingly. Before you even get to the machine gun, though, we have um, this is this is well done. You have the whipping scene, right, which is definite on-screen violence. And right. then you have him get, get into town and go into the bar. And you, before there's any shooting violence, he has this this uh, fist fight there in the bar, which is it's almost as if the they're trying to escalate slowly the violence in the film. You have the whipping scene where it, you know, there's different ways to cut it and film it. But then you get to this fist fight and it's like starts out as what you would expect for like a normal barroom brawl between a couple of guys in a, in, in a Western, right? But right. you end up with 
with one dude taking off a gun belt and using it to wail on the other, and bottles and chairs, chairs that don't break, by the way. Uh, and, and, it fi- yeah. and it ends, and it, it finally ends when one guy gets shoved against a damn pickaxe. Yeah, so, that was that was one thing. Seriously, uh, when I was watching the film for however many times I watched it, there was a there was a gag in the old mad magazine about what the West was like in movies and what it was like in real life. It says like you pick up a stool and you hit a guy in the head in movies and it shatters in real life. You pick up a stool, you hit a guy in the head and it doesn't break and you keep clubbing him with it. Yeah. You keep beating him with it. Yeah. Yeah. You keep beating him with it. And, and this movie, everything in this movie, and it might have to do with the expense. This is not Hollywood. Hollywood was a machine that made sure everything flowed in a certain way. I mean, that props broke that were supposed to be used to hit somebody and et cetera, et cetera. In this movie, um, you guys are falling over chairs and stuff, and the chairs are bouncing around, and you go, uh, that's, that's a real, a real chair. chair. That's yeah. a real <laughs> chair. Um, there was scenes in there. That fight was brutal. Yeah. And, and and only ended by the fact that they go, okay, how do we end this? The guy the guy falls onto a pickaxe and gets impaled on it. But the rest of the fight is sort of um I don't want to say it was maybe squeamish, but you're sort of like I feel bad for these guys, whether they're stuntmen, which I don't know. How much of it was stuntmen? Did you did you look close? I mean, how much of it looked like in that like- sequence it looked a lot to me like it was both like maybe the actor who got the pickaxe was uh, a stuntman that they just cast as an actor to make to make things easier. But yeah. to be honest, it looked like it was actually Franco Nero who was in the fight with him. There might have been once or twice where where they used a stunt guy, but um it's a painful fight. We get when well, by the time we get to the scene where Rodriguez cuts off uh, the character Brother Johnson's ear and tries to get him to eat it, that's uh, R-rated. Yeah, I mean, that, no, it's like I didn't have to do much research to realize. Oh yeah, 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 I'm sure that that sequence got cut out of a lot of prints of this movie in the 1960s because holy crap, that's almost the kind of scene that you would film for a movie as a negotiation tactic once the MPAA came in. In other words, something that you knew you weren't going to fight to keep, but it was it was a bargaining chip. It's like, yeah. oh, I know you're not going to let me get away with this, but if I put this in here, you'll let me get away with a few extra, you know, bullet bullet hits and, you know, people getting shot in, in, in creative ways. Yeah. Uh, there's things about this film that are pre... Uh, I don't know. To me, when when did the R rating actually come? Where did M come in? Uh, 68, 69. This movie would have gotten an M. Yeah. You know, or a V or whatever they, they did at the time when they weren't sure they were. It was kind of, you know, settling down to the final, to the R rating. It was, it was G, 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 P, um, M. I think the, at first it was M. And then there was, then, real briefly, there was a V. I don't remember that. Okay, unless yeah. unless that was a promotional thing and it was like rated V for violence. Don't you remember that? <laughs> you don't remember that? Well, that yeah, you now that you now that you say it that way, that does seem like the perfect Ballyhoo thing, doesn't it? This film rated V for violence. Rated V for violence. You know, oh shit, I gotta go see that. <laughs> but um frogs. Anyway, so uh Anyway, no, but um, this movie really does, it it is about five years ahead of its time. And I don't know if that's necessarily a compliment, six, seven years ahead of its time. 
is that this movie feels like it was created in the early 70s. I totally believed it. And and I'm almost always right when I watch a film. I go, what year was this made? Without getting the book out, without getting the Leonard Moulton guy, without getting IMDb out, I always guess within like two years. That's how good I am. And I said 1972. I was way off. And it's because of the violence every time. I mean, th- th- this is... This is pushing the violence. This is pushing the level of violence. We should point out, by the way, that the Spaghetti Western started out by pushing the level of violence, uh, which is, besides the the gritty look of them, is another way in which they kind of broke through, made themselves, you know, recognizable as something different. Some of the things that, some of the taboos that they were breaking as far as on-screen violence were because they were intentionally pushing the envelope to make their product stand out. But yeah. some of the things were just natural to them. Something that well, yeah, would not I mean, occur. It kind of just happened. It just sort of right. happened. Like the right. guy goes, "Okay, you're there. The guy's going to shoot you. We got the camera going. Okay, roll them, boom. Right. Oh my god, that's more graphic." The ways in which this film is working overtime, Django does its best right. to subvert a lot of different things. Just the same way that that's how a lot of Italian westerns, a lot of spaghetti westerns, worked overtime to kind of make their point by twisting something that you were expecting to put a different spin on it, do something that Hollywood either was afraid to do or never thought to do. And in a lot of cases, I have to say it's probably never thought to do. And one of my favorite little bitty things, it's not a, it's not a major thing. It's not underlined. It's not, uh, nobody like sends up fireworks when it happens, but it's really quick and it's really fun, which is at the beginning when, um, uh, Jackson and his men come into the bar. This is the first I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, well, one, he comes in there with like five or six guys. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one of them, it, it, one of them looks like he's going to be the baddest mofo of them all because he's yes. got a very distinctive look. Uh, I've seen him described as kind of Nosferatu looking. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say he looks like Mortimer Snurd, but go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I was, I, I was. He, he stations himself kind of behind Django. So yep. when Django pulls out his gun and starts mowing these assholes down, yeah, he shoots him without even looking at him. Yes. yes. As if to completely dismiss one of the standard things that happens in a stand, in a Hollywood western, which is the most interesting of the villains is going to be the most interesting villain as far as action and gunfighting and everything else. That is not what happens. This fucker gets gunned down with without Django even looking at him. Yeah, he's 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 the big goofy toothy guy. It, it reminds me, and I'm not a baseball fan. I, I was I was watching Ken Burns' a History of Baseball, and there's that super catch, the famous, most famous catch in the history of baseball. Where uh, is it, Jackie Robinson? I don't know who it was. Anyway, he the ball is in the air, and the guy leaps in the air, and he catches it. He's looking completely the other way, 180 degrees the other way, but he catches the ball with the total purpose of spinning and getting it to a base. Yeah. And that's kind of what this is. It's like, and that's exactly when you started saying this, I know where Rodney's going with this. This guy <laughs> is the snaggletooth goof that's supposed to be at the end of the film and dies in the street like a pig. And no, 
Django yeah. takes the gun and just drops it behind him because he, he he knows where the guy was the last time he was saying something to him and puts a bullet in him as he's shooting everybody else. I love that scene. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's amazing. It, it, and what's beautiful about it is it demonstrates almost three different things all at once. One, yeah. it demonstrates Django's ability with a handgun. This right. guy is fast, accurate, and deadly. Two, yeah. it demonstrates that the movie is not going to play by the same bullshit rules that you're walking in expecting. And by him then pointedly not killing the leader of this group, the film is telling you he's here to fuck with that guy specifically. Yeah, that guy, the the actor, you'll know the name and, and oh, the character yeah, yeah, that he yeah. plays. I lo- I is love that, he's, I love um, that actor. He's... Um, his I hate Eduardo, him. I mean, Eduardo Fajardo, and he's a he's an incredible actor. And I've seen him turn up. Well, I got to know him because he's in a few Nashy films, of course. Right. Uh, which which makes it stand out. Uh, he he was also well, he was also in um, Baba's House of Exorcism when he had to bastardize oh, okay. Lisa and the Devil. Right. Uh, he's in the the excellent little Giallo by Luigi uh, Luigi Cosi called The Killer Must Kill Again. Okay. Oh, wait, actually, he's he's also in Lisa the Devil. He's in both versions of that. I forgot. So he's in the one with Telly Savalas. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I I was gonna watch that. Now I think I will after you you know after you said that. This guy is, you know, it's it's the old thing on Mash. Let's avoid the Christmas rush and start hating him right away, <laughs> kind of thing. Exactly. And he's very he's very uh, good to hate. I mean, I'm sure he's proud of that that fact. He does a good job. Now, here's my thing in this film. He's, quote unquote, what, the white guy? Is that right? And he hates the Mexicans yes, across exactly. the border. And he's very good at being this, you know, regal authoritarian scumbag, for lack of a better term. But he, yeah. and, and, and as soon as Django lets him go, you know there's more here than meets the eye because Django's like, yeah, I let him go. There's a reason for it, and you're like, okay, there's there's more plot here than we know. This isn't just some guy who's come in and pissed off the local bad guys. Yeah, he's um, he's, here, he's here with a purpose. Yeah, um, I let let us stop for a minute and uh, from from the plot. I wanted to talk about something that the first time I ever saw this film, I fell in love with, and I kind of talked about it earlier. But the town, the set. Yeah, I love it. I remember the first time I ever saw it. The only thing I could think of is taking a screen capture of the town with the mud and all the the buildings and the sticks and the and the and the uh, you know things that you tie up the horses on and also and do a painting of it. It's a cool. It's a cool set. It's a big set. It's big, and I don't think we ever give enough credit. You know, um, it started with me with like. Uh, Bernard uh, Robinson with the Hammer films, uh, these guys that put in all this effort to create this universe, and they don't get enough credit. And I, I love the set of this movie with the mud, which we've talked about, yeah, and the sets and the buildings and and stuff. You know, this is sort of out there. You're not even sure what some of it's for, but they did well, a great. You, you might be interested to know that the guy who's responsible for the production design of this film. Uh huh. Uh, also did the production design of The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah. I mean, it's nice. 
Yeah. It's nice. It's got real character and uh, it's dingy. But I, I remember the very first time I saw it, which has probably been, I don't know, maybe not a decade ago, but close. And I'm watching it. And I'm like, God, I'd love to just just do a painting of this thing. It's so cool. I mean, what this man, what these people achieved. So. Well, one of the things about this town is, OK, the, the reason there are so few people in it and that the real, really the only people who are coming into this 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 bar and casino at all are these two warring factions yeah. is that everybody else has either been run off or killed. Yeah. And when, every time we see a good a good wide shot of this town, it's like it's like the buildings are are leaning over. It's, it's like they're broken teeth stuck in the mud just kind of <laughs> at, at odd angles. It's yeah. like this bizarre uh, it, it's almost as if some of the buildings, if, if, if you look at them right, I'm wondering if he was trying to give you the impression of the buildings being tombstones themselves. Wow, damn. Rodney, you're a poet. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like, that's a good analogy. I think, I think I agree with you. I think that the, and the wood's all ashy. There's no brown yeah. left to it. There's no paint or anything all, on it. It's washed out. And it looks like it looks like it's been there so long that if it if it didn't die from violence, it was going to die from old age and decrepitude in the first place. Yeah, it's sort of like you've got these bag. I mean, who the hell wants to live there anyway? So you've got this guy. Give me the name of the guy that runs the bar who's got the little oh. uh, brothel going on because this guy we got to talk about a little bit. Great, a great character actor. He's phenomenal. Yeah, uh, the name of the character is Nathaniel, and is the actor is. Uh, well, let me pronounce it correctly because he's a Spanish actor. Right. Angel Alvarez. He, and, um, uh, this guy. He's, he's, he's great. He's really great. We yeah. can talk about the fact that, yes, he's got this brothel of women in his bar, which I guess would have been semi-standard in places back in the Old West. I don't know how true that is or if that's just a romantic thing. You know, how often places you went to had women, uh, you know, that were, that could be paid for. But, um, do you hate the guy for that? I mean, in modern sensibilities, you hate his guts because it's almost like these women are slaves, but you go back into that time period and it's sort of like, okay, that happened. That's what the guy does. But other than that, he's not a bad guy, but he's not a bad guy other than what I just talked about. Yeah, he sort of he kind of gets a lot of crap dumped on him through this film. I mean, when uh, the Mexicans show up, including uh, Django's friend or quasi friend, the guy that he rescued, who feels like he's indebted to Django, shows up. I mean, Django opens up the coffin, grabs the machine gun and mows down the guy's booze. Uh, Yeah. uh, You know, the guy's asking him not to do it and he and he blows it away. But but throughout this film, this guy's life is goes from bad to worse. And by the end of the film, when he is and this is the one thing I didn't understand. Maybe you can tell me the villain that we talked about earlier. The white guy who comes back later to find out where Django is or whatever to get Django and the the the, major. Yeah, yeah, the major. Yeah. And he and 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 this guy says, hey. He's kind of, he can't really do much of anything. His hands were all shattered by the Mexicans. They bashed his hands in. The guy does, the guy listens to him for a split second and then mows this guy down. And I'm kind of like, why did that, why did the major kill him? Why just, just out of just the hell with everything? 
or or what? Because it seems like it, it it I'm not saying it bothered me like in some writing thing. It's it, it, it that that scene. I'm not saying it bothers me like in film ways. It doesn't bother me. It pisses me off the way film people are supposed to be pissed off. You're watching a film and the scumbag comes in and mows this guy down. Now, we have the fact that Django has shown affection for uh, this lady at the beginning of the film. Even though it's very, very minimal, you can still see it's there. This woman's being beat by the Mexicans and then the white guys show up and then they are going to light her on fire and Django kills uh, kills those guys and takes her to the bar and gets her a room for the night. Although he's not very nice to her, it's sort of just like, okay, this is the thing I should do as a guy, a gentleman. This lady shouldn't be treated this way, blah, blah, blah. She can sense something right at the very edge that we're not sure, and that is that he does like her. You know, that she is, um, uh, you know, she's conflicted. She's been with the Mexicans. She's been with the white guys. That's caused problems. Everybody wants to kill her. I mean, uh, the the women hate her guts because she stirred up trouble. There's a fight between all these prostitutes in the street, in the mud. And then, of course, the Mexicans show up. Uh, is that when the Mexicans show up? They, yeah, they show up right around the time the, the, the prostitutes are having a fight in the street and getting in the mud. And that's when they grab the guy, cut his ear off, and make him eat it. But um, this woman who is um, striking and, and pretty cool, I liked her. I thought, I thought she was pretty neat. But she, she could sense that Django really did care about her. Um, I don't know. I mean, it was um, it was one of those things where she seemed like such a doomed character, and she later in the, at the end of the film where she's trying to rescue Django when he falls in, they're back at that bridge where she was originally being beat. They've got the gold that they they took from the robbery, and the gold falls into because the horse bolts and the it's in the coffin, and then it goes into this mud which a villain went into earlier to show you that you don't come back from it. And Django's trying to get it, and the woman's trying to help him. She gets shot in the back while trying to rescue him. You know, from the Mexicans are the ones that, that, that shoot her. And then he comes up out of the mud. Then they take his hands and they bash him in with the butt of a rifle. They turn his hands into mincemeat. But throughout this... After the Mexicans, they go, we're not going to kill you. We're going to leave. And then they go off and then they get massacred by the, by the, by the major. Django picks this woman up and takes her back to the, to the, to the town and back into that bar. And she's got a bullet in her. And she asks the guy that we're, that we were discussing, the guy that runs the bar to help her. I think she can live if you could help her. And he says, he'll try and, and all that. And it looks like he's done his, the best that he can to help her. And then the major walks in looking for Django and mows this guy down. Yeah. I mean, she's like right there. I mean, she's like right there with the couch turned the opposite way from the, from the villains, from the major and his villainous gang. And this- oh, well, here's the thing. I think all these things, remember the movie, the movie does, the movie kind of goes overboard in uh, demonstrating to us 
that uh, Major Jackson is a villain. <laughs> I mean, both both sides are demonstrated very clearly to be villains, but Major Jackson, I mean, my God, there's that point at which he is uh, he's mowing down. He's he's using Mexicans like, like you would like you would uh, shoot skeet for God's sake. He's having them run out there to, and see how far they'll get when he for him to still be able to shoot them. Yeah, and and, and it's it, it's the movie's repeatedly showing you in different ways just how callous and awful this human being is. Of course, you know, any one of those things would have been sufficient to, to, to present an audience with enough evidence for, for, uh, for condemnation. And the, the, the ending, of course, you'd almost expect him the the, the most, the the amount, the amount of villainy we see this son of a bitch portray on screen. You almost expect Django would almost need to cut him in half or blow him up or something to, to exact the equal amount of retribution necessary to, to even things out. But uh, I, I think the ending is, is, is brilliant. I love the way it plays. Let's just say that it comes full circle. And we, we have the, we have the cross over the uh, grave of his uh, beloved, being used as a part of his, uh, well, part. Let's just say, part, uh, helping him with the his ability to uh, to kill the people he he says are responsible for her death in the first place. So, yeah. The well, well and I actually wondered if there was going to be more of a. Uh, of course, only in going back to it. I don't think the first time I saw this movie, I was thinking, hmm, I wonder about the philosophical underpinnings of the storyline. No, but in future in future viewings, one thing that it did did wonder about was just how hard they were trying to hit the religious aspects of it, because you have that one prostitute who's constantly crossing herself. Yeah. Which you know automatically brings brings you into okay okay so we've got at least one character on screen who's Catholic, and then uh, later on I mean once you get you you have a similar motion going on there over the the grave of the uh, his his dead beloved, and, and it makes me start to wonder is there some apparently too subtle religious note being. Yeah. Uh, played along with everything else here that I'm missing. I, 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 I still, you know, even after multiple viewings, I don't see anything that really stands out and makes me think that that was something they may have, may have been aiming for, but it is another nice little feature, you know, a little tonal piece that's added into this, to, to the whole big cake that this thing is just makes it feel as if there's a lot of thought put into more than just you know how how do we kill all these folks? It's 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 how do we you know and how do we be clever about it? How do we introduce a story elements that are going to surprise people that are going to kind of come at you from the left or the right in a way that you don't expect? It, it's it's an inventive film, but I don't know that they were necessarily trying to put a religious aspect into this, other than it just being something that some of the characters would naturally have. You know, it would be a natural part of them trying to cope with this hellish existence that they're living through. Yeah, it seems to me the the movie doesn't really deal with religion much, other than the fact that the uh, they they talk about this a couple of times that the um, the cemetery is full, and, yeah. and they've got to make a new cemetery because of all the people Django killed. But I think at the end, uh, uh, you know, if you're religious, you can see the religious aspects of it. If you're not religious, you can see that it's just a technical thing. And also maybe one of passion. Django, the woman that he loves, is in the ground there. It's like, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die 10 feet away from the person I loved in life. 
even with the fact there might be a girl back at the bar, (laughs) so romantic (laughs) that, that I, that I love, I might be falling in love with, but I'm here now. I'm going to die. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die with somebody who I knew. I I know for certain that I love. And so he, he gets that, he, he takes his bashed up fingers, which for 1966 makeup is pretty effective and and sits there and is dealing with trying to get this gun to fit through this wrought iron crucifix that's in the ground that he can set the gun up and use it almost like a sight or a uh, 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 you know, a, a brace. A, I would think. a tripod. Yeah, like yeah. you're you're trying to get it to 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 sit there, so that you can do what he does. And I'm not going to say what it is. You're right at the second, but the bad guys show up. C- uh, Captain Honky shows up, uh, and starts you know talking about yeah. you know Django. You know maybe you should just you know come on out and let us cap you in the head or whatever the hell it is that he says. And then Django, who's got the gun, finally, exactly where he wants it. There's like, what is it, five, six guys? I don't know how many it is. But Django sits there and does, uh, I guess you call this fanning. You fa- he fans the, 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 what's the back part of the gun? The part, the suit, it's not the trigger because the, 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 the triggers in the front, the hammer. He, he fans the hammer and just nails everybody. It's almost like the ending of Quentin Tarantino's uh, Death Proof, where everybody gets killed <laughs> and then it goes, the end. You know, I mean, it's almost like that kind of a thing. And I, I had to explain this to my kids. Old movies, when they resolved a problem, the end showed up real quick, and they're like, damn, that was quick. It's like there's not some big William Shatner speech for two more minutes afterwards to sort of send you on your way. Django just – and the guy comes up, yeah, Django, you know what? Uh, I never liked you, blah, 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 blah. And then Django goes, well, maybe you need to – and he, he shoots everybody, and then the song kicks up. Django, you know. And and then that's it. It's like I, we never even see him. You know, he's going to the woman at the bar, the woman that he's you know probably in love with. But well, here's the thing: I think I fully think that he like, expected to die in that graveyard. I think you're right. I think that's why he sure. chose that spot. So yes, yep, that's what I think too. I think it. Or if I'm going, maybe I got a chance. But if I'm going to die, I'm going to be near, you know, who I love. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, but he fans the the hammer of the gun, kills everybody, which was real fast because there's no evil white guy crawling through the dirt for five minutes. Yeah, there's and, no negotiation you know, Django, after all the ba- all all the henchmen. Yeah, it, it was quick. Killed. He's, there's not a henchman death, and then the the big bad standing there taunting him or saying something or whatever. No, no, no. He just guns them all down. Period. Well, I mean, think about this, and I and I love this movie, uh, the um, the Quentin Tarantino movie Django and Chain, which has the namesake and even has uh, even has Franco Nero, uh, yeah. uh, Franco Nero in it briefly. Yeah, he comes in and 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 talks to Django, who in this case is. Uh, but at the end of that movie, you get a nice long fade out to where you can feel good, where all the bad guys are killed, and Django does some 
little tricks with the horse and 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 kind of flirts with his girlfriend showing his skill with the horsemanship and and everything and then they like kind of like leave together and it's like it lasts like three minutes you know and you're kind of like okay that's cool it kind of fades out Django's just sort of like bah, 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 bah. Django <laughs> and that's it you know and then the song goes up and then he walks out of the cemetery and that's it and it's like well I I, I wouldn't have minded seeing him going into the bar and 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 seeing his girlfriend there with the with the bullet hole doing better you know feeling a little bit better well, no, but it's not that the tone stuff. that they're shooting for here to be blunt uh to also make no you know, pun, no pun intended an unfortunate pun Un-man. i did not mean to do that uh no yes, i actually did. did not but that's not the tone the movie's shooting for uh-huh. Uh, there, I'll, I'll clean of it up. There. Well, what it's shooting for is a 1960s movie, and that's exactly what I told my kids: is 1960s movies or 50s movies. Inside, you know, it's like okay, here's the problems resolved. But about the end, a Warner Brothers production. I mean, it was just sort of like well, no, the, but see, it, you I things move quicker. Towards something else, which is you know, Troy and I used to joke all the time back when we first started the Nashy cast, we used to joke about the, you know, the, the downbeat endings that became the standard in nine in 1970s movies. And, uh, you know, it's, it's yeah. like in a lot of ways, Django feels like once again, a 1970s movie where, where it's not a, a, a completely unhappy ending where, you know, like the hero dies. That's not, that's yeah. not the ending, but at the same time, the hero's suffering is so mighty <laughs> and everybody else that you yeah. can give a shit about is dead. It, it's, it's, it's pretty hideous in that respect. So it's, it does once again have that seventies downbeat ending yeah. feel. Well, that's what I'm saying about the ending of, of Tarantino's death proof. Yeah. I mean, Kurt Russell comes out, they, the women punch him in the face and then they stomp him on the head. And when they jump in the air saying, yay, the end shows up. And I remember laughing because I was showing it to my son, James, and I looked and I said, that's the way movies used to end. And he's like, wow, that was quick. Maybe it's because of when I grew up. In a lot of ways, I kind of, I almost feel more satisfied when it has that kind of an ending. Especially if it's it's somewhat downbeat. A bittersweet ending is even better where you can see some glimmers of hope, but man, the darkness is almost overpowering. I love that. I love it a lot. Yeah. Well, I I think this. It also, um, the ending of this movie also uh, gives the audience a nod saying, we know you're smart enough to know what's going to happen. Okay, Django... His hands are bashed, but he did fan the, the fan the hammer of the gun, killed everybody. The song kicks up, and he walks out of the out of the graveyard. Where is he going to go? Is he just going to walk off into the sunset? No, he's going to go get the girl, and he's going to get her, and then they're going to go off together, and it's over, and their life is going to change. But back then, movies would allow you to say. I, I think this is the ending. I already know where it's going. It was actually in some ways a little smarter. Nowadays, they got to make sure that everybody, it's all tied up nice yeah, and neat. Yeah. And you're sort of like, yeah. But um, good Lord, how many films I've watched, especially with all the Kino Lorber movies that are going on nowadays that they're restoring and all that. And you watch them and whew, boy, that ended quick. But I still know the outcome. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so you, so you like the theme song? What's it? What to what? Django. Django. (laughs) 
You look like Rodney Barnett. <laughs> when, you, when you said I look like a young, young Franco Nero. Yeah, okay, all right. For everybody, because Rodney said he wished he was recording this the other day, <laughs> I was watching the movie, and I said, and I was watching, I said, boy, that, you know, uh, Franco Nero looks really familiar with the stubble and all that stuff, and his little blue eyes and all that. And I, I kept thinking about it, thinking about it, and, and it dawned on me in horror <laughs> That I was actually going to have to pay um, Rodney Barnett a compliment and say that um, he he looks he looked a little bit like Franco Nero, you know. Although Franco Nero is much leaner and 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 uh, you know uh, much more chiseled features, but still, having said that, it it does look like Rodney to a little bit of a degree. Now here's the horrific part for all the guys and gals that listen to this show that love us oh, fighting Lord. with each other, they're going to be like, I watching this or listen to this show anymore because Mark Maddox is being nice to Rodney because they love the hate. But, but Of course, everyone does. But I said it, you know, yeah, Rodney, yeah, actually, I mean, as for God's sake, who in the world do you know is uh, deals more with portraits than me? You know what I mean? In other words, I mean, when it comes to faces and painting faces and drawing faces and stuff, I mean, I'm one of the most prolific that there is. And it's like, it's like, I looked at it and said, yeah, it kind of looks like Rodney, if Rodney was good looking. But, um, <laughs> but a little bit. And that's when you and I got into this big talk about, now let's talk about the dubbing real quick, because we had talked about the fact that the Gamma film, one of our all-time favorite movies ever, Wild Wild Planet, Wild Planet came out yeah. uh, the same year, right? Same year. Uh, yeah, it kind of depends on where you were in the world, but yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, I mean, technically, even though I could say in 66, I saw it, 66, 67, when it came out, I was in Europe. I was technically at the air base. I mean, I was at Ramstein, Germany. And because of that, theirs was whatever the uh, the united states was saying so it's not like it's almost like a little slice of the united states right there but i saw that there and the movie freaked me out but franco nero was in it and you told me that the dubbing was oh, by yeah. the hero from the lead hero from that movie and what's his name and let's talk about uh, tony, that. To, uh, tony russell uh yeah if you watch the english dub which is, by the way, an inferior way to see this film. If you want a, uh, if you want a, a better experience, watch the Italian dub with yeah. English subtitles. It's a, it's it's a, it's a better version of the story, right? To be it to is. be clear, but the but Franco Nero's voice in the English dub was dubbed by his co-star in Wild Wild Planet and More of the Planets, uh, Tony Russell. Now, yeah. Tony Russell, very interesting cat because while he was over in um, in Italy making. Lots of different films. He's one of these guys who uh, helped set up one of the the bigger dubbing English dubbing companies over there, and uh, uh, so it wasn't that much of a surprise that Russell, who had an you know had an excellent leading man's voice, obviously, would end up dubbing something like Django. But that's far from the only thing he 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 dubbed. But he was one of these people who set up a a dubbing studio over there and uh, was responsible for a lot of English soundtrack dubs for years over there. Right. Well, I'm going to say something about Tony Russell. I, I watched the, um, the uh, Italian version, right. Uh And then I want turned right around and listened to the uh, dub version. My problem with it is that 
Franco Nero has a great voice on his own. Yeah. And that when Tony uh, Zimbabwe, what, what was his name? Tony, Tony Russell. Tony <laughs> Russell. That's a hard, tough name to, to remember. Tony yeah, Russell. Really rough. Well, I'm going to say this. There's a combination of things. One was his voice. He sa- he tried to sound angelic. And that the dialogue tried to sound angelic, where he was a little rougher in the original version. The uh, And I'm kind of like, eh, I'm going to go with the subtitled version. You know, and it's not a big insult to the dubbed version, but eh, it's a bit of a criticism. You know, and I know I'm not going to back down on that. I, I honestly no, think I, that I wouldn't. I wouldn't say you, you should or, or anything anything different along. No, the yeah, you do. You were a... trying to start some shit. <laughs> no, I was trying to point out <laughs> something to you a few days Roddy ago, Barnett, which is which is shit. which is very which is very uh, very true of uh, films at the time, which is these movies are being dubbed into various languages by these different teams of people. They're have you know, they're having to, in a lot of cases, they don't have any necessary connection to the movie or the people who made it or anything like that. And they're essentially working off of a script that they're probably sometimes having to translate themselves. And God knows the, the budget on Django was pretty freaking low to begin with. So God knows that they didn't have a lot of money for the, for the dubbing in any language. So it is, it is my belief that, uh, uh, while I I think it's definitely an inferior version, it's also sad to say typical of the English dubs of movies, especially spaghetti westerns at the time. Yeah. In other words, this one isn't specific. This isn't isn't uh, particularly bad. It's just particularly exactly what you would expect from the time period. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like there's a charm to it too. I mean, I got into an argument with a buddy of mine about. Uh, the fact that he felt that he loved the dubbing on Japanese monster movies as much as as the subtitled, where you get the the real voice acting, and I'm like, no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna agree with that. I mean, I want to hear what the Japanese people were saying because I want to know the intensity of the actor. I want to know the intensity of. You know, and it was like, no, no, the, 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 the dubbing's got the charm from when we were kids. It's like, that's not good enough. I mean, well, that was. I can understand uh, some nostalgia for the way I, you first yes, saw the I movie, get that but that's too. about it. I get that too. You just answered your own question. Don't, yeah. don't, don't argue with me. I'm just telling you <laughs> that, that you just said it was nostalgia. Okay, fine. Yeah, I'll yeah, watch it. Te- I'll watch it. I'll watch Gojira 10 times without Raymond Burr. And I'll watch it one time with Raymond Burr just out of nostalgia. But I'm not going to sit here and say that Go- Godzilla with Raymond Burr is as good as Gojira because it damn sure isn't. Gojira no, it's, is. It's, it's certainly not. No. no and, but, and, but the beauty of it is that, you know, in, mo- in in all these cases, and even with something as low budget as Django, we now have the option of viewing it either way. And that's, that's exactly yeah. where I, as a movie nut, want to be. I want to be oh, in the world yeah. where you have all of the options laid out in front of you and you get to pick. I agree. And then, the, and that's okay too. I mean, I would be kind of sad if there never was a, uh, a, a copy of the Raymond Burke Godzilla around. It's like, okay, you know, it's almost like book burning. It's like, let, yeah, let us, let that. us have the opportunity to, to, to see that too, because there's still some, some charm to it. Um, but, uh, I, I think with Django, I think that, that, uh, Franco Nero, um, he was a little bit more of a shit 
And that's what I like about it in his voice and stuff in the film than yeah. Tony Z- Zimbabwe um, was. <laughs> He's from Wisconsin. It's not a hard name to remember. Tony, Tony Wisconsin. Anyway, no, but that guy. Jesus Christ. Hey, look, don't, don't, don't even. I mean, I love Wild Wild Planet. One day I'll learn the guy's name, but, you know, quit hammering me about it, when, pal. When, one of these days you figured out, huh? One of these decades. I'll be on my deathbed. Tony! Uh, uh, and Rodney will be like, uh, uh, yeah. It's Russell. Go ahead. It's Russell. Come on. T- say Tony it. Russell. Tony Russell. <laughs> That'll be it. That'll be the last thing I ever say is Tony Russell. But uh, well, um, I, I want, by the way, when I brought up the the song earlier, I wanted to point out that uh, the vocals, the somewhat Elvis like vocals, they are uh, Elvis like. I I mean, I I played the first time I ever heard it, which I don't think it was in the the Tarantino film, maybe. But I was listening to it. I'm like, damn, that really sounds like Elvis. It's so close. Yeah, well, and it's it's a guy who was born in Alabama. His name was Rocky Roberts. Actually, he was born Charles Roberts. Okay. But, uh, he was uh, he was born in Alabama. He was in the U.S. Navy. was a was a Navy boxing champion, <laughs> and he he got interested in singing, uh, listening to uh, country country music, um, and then uh, ended up winning singing competitions while on shore leave in France. He chose uh. to stay in Europe after he retired from the Navy in '62, and then had this massive career where he was selling millions of copies of songs, and it was just like that's that's what he did the rest of his life. Well, I mean, and he's passed now. Uh, he, yeah, unfortunately, he passed away in uh, 2005 in Rome. He died from uh, he sadly died from lung cancer. Yeah, but he but he made a living off of it. I mean, his yeah. voice. Well, he was good. Profe- he was he was a professional singer. Yeah. He um. I mean, I. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I really love the Django song, and I think it's the guy did awesome. a fantastic job. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to get a complaint from me. Um, I have no idea just in the last you know five ten years how many times i've listened to that song i mean i sometimes i just put it on a loop while i'm doing painting or whatever just let it you jango what kills me is there's nothing there's nothing that lets the song down there's literally no aspect of the song that lets it down the musicians first of all it's a it's a it's wonderfully written the lyrics are sharp the guitar work is astonishing yeah it's good it's a great, it's a great song. Yes, I mean I love it, and you know, I mean I, I'm assuming it's it's kind of vague now. I, I'm assuming that my first uh, taste of it was in the Tarantino film. Although, really, I, my my first taste was definitely seeing the movie, seeing Django itself on the. Yeah, I know, I know, but you're the but VHS or yeah, you know, but I was way ahead of you. I'm just better than you. It's clear. No, you're you're um, a, a buckethead. <laughs> The thing is, is that is I'm better than you. Look, I got shit to do, and so the Tarantino film crosses my path, and then I go back and investigate where was the sources, you know. So um, I found, you know, this really is about the original film. It's not the the Django Unchained, a movie that I really did love. I enjoyed it tremendously. Yeah. But um, but going back and, um, you know, I mean, Tarantino definitely in that film tries to give people breadcrumbs to follow to go back to the original film. I mean, the fact that Franco Nero's in it 
and yeah. and and says, "Oh, that's a good name." Like you get people investigating. Um, on my fiftieth birthday, a friend of mine gave me a poster of the Django movie, uh, the Italian version of the poster, uh, really? signed by signed by Franco Nero. Oh my god! Yeah, and um, oh, all of a sudden, I'm a little bit. All of a sudden, I'm a little more important to Rodney Barnett. Is that? Suddenly, suddenly so, I'm wondering if it's uh, possible to steal that from you. Yeah. yeah. Well, here's the thing: they were they was signing the poster, and the sharpie was running dry. the The autograph is still on there, but you can barely see it. But still, it's a Django poster, uh, and uh, and it's closer. It's closer than I'll ever get to Franco Nero. Yeah. It's it's one of those things where um, I was I was really grateful to get it, but. Um, but watching this film just by itself after the fact, I'm like, you know, this is really a fun, good spaghetti Western, which, it, you know, we need more of them, for lack of a better term. <laughs> we need more. And um, that's one of the reasons that I even bother talking to you is that is that <laughs> I want to I want to say, let's let's find out what's good. Let's 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 pick up on what's good. I mean, everybody knows this, the, the Clint Eastwood trilogy, the man with no name. That's simple. That's shooting fish in a barrel. What else is there? And I don't just mean anyone. I'm talking about the good ones. What are, what's good? And there's people out there that are willing to, you know, to, to throw that out there. Like you said, the sign. What was it called? The silence? The the great. Oh, the, the great. The great. Silence. Silence. Well, see, that's just it. That's we could we could just do four or five episodes on nothing but Sergio Corbucci spaghetti westerns, and yeah. each one of them is incredibly different from the other. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying is I'd like to you know later get a uh, almost like a NASA like a backwards countdown of tell me what the next <laughs> best one is, and then let's oh, let's wow, do yeah. that and do that. But uh, this one was terrific. I think it, it is strange to me. Um, I don't know what it is about movies from that part of the world where the men, their their skin is so olive dark, but their eyes are so blue. It's such a shocking contrast, but um, it's almost like you have to get used to it when you're when you're seeing these films for the first time, where these guys are so um, they're almost like Greek gods in a way. And yet yeah, they yeah. sort of and yet they sort of have to have the stubble and the dirt and the. And they, well, I mean, Franco Nero has always been one of those guys who looked like he was chiseled out of pure awesome. So, yeah, it's it's one of those things where there's a lot of those actors from that time period that kind of feel that way as well. Yeah, and having the you know having the having the stubble on the face and the the right costuming, and suddenly you're looking at these guys and you're going, they're not just actors portraying something on a screen; they're almost archetypes. They're almost the kind of thing that you stare at and go, "Well, no, there's there, there right there is the perfect version of that thought process." Yeah, you know. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, he does a really great job in the film. It's probably my favorite Franco Nero film. I mean, for him, I mean, definitely him being the lead. Um, yeah, it's so funny that it's the same, roughly the same year as Wild Wild Planet, where he's playing a subordinate. And it's kind of running around his scooter, you know. It's like, oh, I'll help you, kind of thing. <laughs> well, hey, this is this is the movie that broke him, man. I mean, yeah. after this, after this, he was a bona fide star and went on to make just about every kind of movie in the world. And one of the, I mean, you know, it was after this uh, that he got 
I mean, he was even able to make some films in the United States. I mean, he was uh, in Camelot, and uh, he played Lancelot in Camelot. Wow. And uh, he played Abel in uh, the Bible. Ah, uh, right. And then, I mean, and like after that, you start looking at the movies he made uh, starting in the late 60s. You're talking about A Quiet Place in the Country, and then uh, things like The Mercenary, uh, Trist, uh, Tristana. Uh, oh, good Lord. And that, of course, Compañeros, The Fifth Chord, uh, The Monk. Which is amazing. Uh-huh. Uh, talk about talk about an underseen horror movie that is is an intelligent horror movie. The Monk from 1972. Uh-huh. Uh huh. This incredible movie with him and Telly Savalas called uh, Redneck. Have you ever seen that? Uh uh-uh. uh. Uh-uh. Not that easy to see. I don't know how. I don't know if there's any streaming possibilities on that one. But it's man, it's it's a sleazy piece of amazing. It's really bizarre. Uh, and, and then he did the crime films he did in the seventies, like High Crime and A Street Law, which are just incredible. How to Kill a Judge, uh, the two White Fang movies he made uh, there in the seventies. Uh-huh. Oh man! And then uh, one of the last spaghetti westerns, Kioma, uh, that is uh, has got you know, a, a, a score that a lot of people consider irritating, but Kioma itself is just freaking brilliant. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the the incredible variation on Last House on the Left called Hitchhike. Um, oh, it was partially oh, shot here in the states. I got that. I, I yeah, bought it. Film. I haven't watched it yet. Oh, great, great! Isn't film. that the Pretty one rough. with like the naked chick with the rifle or something? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the post. That's one of the pieces of post. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, I've got and it. Then he was. Then he was in. Uh, he was in Forced in from Navarone. <laughs> right. Right. Enter the Ninja, for God's sake. He, he's, he's a freaking ninja. I mean, come on. He's, he's freaking Franco Nero. By that point, of course he's a ninja. Who else is going to be a goddamn ninja? <laughs> it's just, he's, he's never stopped working. It's incredible. And I, I, love the, I love the fact that if I'm, if I'm talking to someone younger, you know, like, say, 20 years younger than me, the one thing I can throw out to make them go, oh, yeah, is that he was in Die Hard 2. It's like, I'll just toss that on the table and go there you no, go. wait a minute no, wait a minute that. i've watched die hard too at least five six seven times what yeah what it's been a while though what part is he in die hard too he's one of the he's one of the main bad guys he's esperanza i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to watch it again it's probably been 15 years since i've seen it but i watched it a bunch when it first came out yeah, I'm not. I'm actually not a fan of the film. I think that it's got at least two uh, moments in it that oh, are really, I think it's really fine. stupid. But. It's fine. I mean, it's not great. It's not Die Hard. No, it's it's a massive drop down from that first film. But. Yeah, I mean, they were working it. Who's the Who's the guy from Finland that directed it? Rennie Harlan. Oh God, you remember? Yeah, Harlan. he was always sort of. Uh, I mean, there was a couple of movies he made that I kind of liked, but if you really look at him, it's like, yeah, you're you're kind of a wannabe. You know, he's a he's 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 a lot of a wannabe. He he and Stephen Summers are in the same. They're like peas in a pod. It's like you can watch their movies and start, and you can go, oh, he stole that from this. Oh, and he stole that from this. Well, I, oh, I mean, Stephen Summers is isn't Stephen Summers the guy that made uh, Deep Rising or whatever with the. Uh, yes, that was that wasn't that bad. And then the first mo- I just rewatched Deep Rising, and it's worse than I remember. Oh. Now we've got a problem. Uh, I'm not saying it's a masterpiece, but I mean, in comparison yeah, to most, in comparison to most shit horror films, which, like God bless, so many films, modern horror films are crap. I'll give it at least. Oh, that was at least somewhat entertaining. Or the the hey, first mummy, the that. first mummy movie, uh, which is shit too. 
Oh, so you're one of those guys. Steven Summers has never made a good film. The Mummy, his fucking Mummy movie in 1999, I, I went to see it opening night with my buddy Jeff. We sat there watching this thing, just anticipating it, loving it. By 20 minutes in, we were both looking at each other and going, oh my God, is this a fucking parody? Yeah, but if you're... Is this a goddamn it is, parody? It, I mean, I will say this is Indiana Jones meets a mummy movie, but but given... No, it's, it's I couldn't get anybody to let me make a fucking Indiana Jones movie, so I'm going to make it here and lie to you about what this is, and then all the humor is going to be right at the level of a fucking 12-year-old. It's just, oh, it's fucking irritating. And then, it's so bad... And then when you find out some of the stupid jokes that he built into the movie that he had to edit out because even the producers thought they were too fucking stupid, it's like, oh my god. Well, I guess he got him put in, in in the Mummy too because, I mean, me, oh, no, me yeah, I had, I had just too. gotten married and my my then wife was like, oh, well, I, I want to go see the new Mummy movie, so she's like, okay, let's go because she was stupid enough to follow me and then we watched it and we were we started laughing about 20 minutes into the film and i'm like oh my god this is garbage but it's way worse than the first mummy movie but um yep yep but i but i still i'm not gonna go along with with uh with uh deep rising or that being terrible that terrible is too strong a word in comparison to 99.99 percent of the horror films which basically is most of nowadays that are being made that are shit they're shit i you know having not seen all of those movies but only i mean i can tell you that deep rising is 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 uh, just as bad as i remembered it and i hated it the first time i saw it. wow you're wrong no 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 no, you're wrong you're wrong rising is garbage folks i want you to think about this movie i want you to think about deep rising and i want you to decide for yourself shit or gold. Here's the thing. Or is it that a golden part, shit? That part where that guy, where they're where they're watching that guy being, there's like he's. They don't know what they're like, but they're looking at this thing. They cut it open, and this partially digested guy falls out, and he's still alive. That's horror. That's like H.P. Lovecraft sort of horror, where a guy falls out of this things, whether it's an intestine or a stomach or whatever it is, and the guy. Yes, but at no point in the movie is, does anybody act like a normal human being. All of the dialogue is pitched as if it were written by a fucking ten-year-old. No, everybody acts like a fucking idiot all the time. But dude, you can say that about the movie we talked about, where we just reviewed. I mean, what's going on in this film what? is crazy. You've got a guy dragging a cannon around, a machine gun around conveniently. Well, yes, and starts but the dialogue doesn't make me. The dialogue doesn't make me think that the, the, the script was written by somebody with a lobotomy. Deep rising. Mm, no, no. See, now you've gone too far. Now we've got a problem. Okay, uh, what was the last time you watched Deep Rising? Oh, I don't know, maybe five years ago or something, six years ago, something like that. Oh, good Lord. No, five years ago, you should have been mature enough to see it was shit. That's that's sad. Okay. <sighs> let me put it. Let me put it this way. <laughs> Some of the films that you tell me are great. I look at them and go, what am I seeing when he's telling me this great? Because I don't see it. This now comes down to personal preference. I'm not saying that Rising Deep Rising or Rising Damp. No, that's the British com- comedy show. <laughs> rising Damp. Rising. Do you remember that show, Rising Damp? No, you don't. <laughs> no, I, I, I know of it, but I've never yeah, seen it. I've uh, never seen it. Deep Rising. No I'm not. I'm not acting like it's you know Stanley Kubrick or something like that. But I'm saying 
that when I saw it, I was pleasantly surprised by a lot of things of it. And then The Mummy, I enjoyed. I mean, I'm not saying it's, you know, Bride of Frankenstein. What do you feel about Von Helsting? Oh, that that I just, I almost burned the theater down. I almost like yeah, yeah. lit a fire. Like I say, that's Stephen Summers. Yeah, but, but the thing is, is that The Mummy was acceptable. Mummy 2 was not. The Van Helsing, I was livid when I left the theater. I mean, I was livid. I mean, for Van Helsing is an is a bona fide crime against cinema. Well, I mean, there's 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 things when I'm watching certain films, and I'm like, you completely missed the point. Now, here's what I heard about Van Helsing, and I'm not going to say it forgives the movie, but originally, it wasn't about Van Helsing. It was about. Um, the, Originally, it was a video game because it certainly fucking feels like. Well, that too. But the um, the character it was originally supposed to be, and, and think about the design of Hugh Jackman's clothing. It was supposed to be a Solomon Kane movie. Well, they no, then. But you see what I'm they, saying? They, you've they you've seen Solomon Kane. You, you've read R- yeah. Robert E. Howard Solomon Kane stories. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed that Solomon Kane film. Eh, that was okay. But the thing is, is that is that if you look at it, it's this guy who's going around killing evil uh, yeah. and all this kind of stuff, and yet we get Van Helsing. I'm watching the film, and it starts off maybe a few minutes i'm like okay and then after that i'm just like right down the hill i mean this 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 woman oh it's awful this woman is you know fighting vampire fighting vampire women flying around this town she falls she clips her head multiple times as she's going down on branches and stuff and she finally but she does manage to hit the ground on her feet and is already running and i'm like wow you just got beat in the head by tree branches as you're falling from a tree, you know, 10, 20, 30 feet up. And then, Oh, that, that, that's only, that's only one of the, but, but at the end, but movie. at the end of the movie, she gets swatted by Dracula or werewolf or I don't know what it is. And she falls on a figning couch and dies. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. What's Dude, the, how, how anybody, how anybody makes it past the uh, crossbow of infinite bolts sequence. And, and is not screaming for their money back. Yeah. Or the vampire baby water balloons. I, do, I don't understand. That I don't even remember. I saw it once. I saw it at the theater once. I was with four or five oh. buddies. I stood up. I was enraged. I, you know, it was sort of like, don't talk to me kind of thing. Uh, uh, but um, I'm not going to give that to this, to those other two films you were talking about. I don't think they were. The- well, listen, listen, we're, we're, we're well off track. Let, let me ask a simple question. Mm. Um, Django is a movie that you've seen several times. Yeah. About uh, five you knew, now. You knew, you, yeah. You, you, you knew it before we decided to uh, talk about it for the podcast. Yeah. Um, you know, there were, there were hundreds of spaghetti Westerns. Uh, and I have no idea of them. I have no idea how many of them you've actually seen, but I mean, like, not a lot. Oh, really? So we're talking like maybe a dozen. Is that where you're thinking? Uh, yeah, maybe something like that. Yeah. Okay. So to me, this is you know like the one to ten scale. Django's like an eight. I think it's phenomenal. I, I right. absolutely love this movie. And I just wondered uh, on a one to ten scale, like where, where what's your range on 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 Django here? Well, I mean. Um... What was it I said the other day? I got to do a big fight here on Facebook when I said there is no perfect movie. Yeah, which that, I think it, it, I think is a problem that you're gonna you and I are gonna have to discuss at a future time because you you seem to signify you seem to want to equate 
giving a movie a a 10 on a 1 to 10 scale as it being a perfect movie and that is far from my thought on so that what, at all. So what so what you're talking about is grading it on a curve. No, it's not to, it's not even grading it on a curve. It's that um, there is nothing that is perfect. So trying to pretend, That's what I'm saying. No, no, no. So we so we just agreed. No, no. no. That's, once that's again what I'm and we and we've no had this discussion as, before So you're you, talking you about grading to, on a curve. No. You're talking I'm, talking, about, I'm talking about the fact that if you're going to sit there and eliminate 10 possible ratings out of a 10 rating scale, then you are essentially saying it's only really a nine point scale. And if you're no. only eliminating 10, you've got to also at that point decide that you're going to eliminate one. So, so we're so talking really about only an eight on, point scale. We're talking about grading on a curve. Then. No, it's not grading on a curve. Well, it I is, mean, we can, you have you set the parameters as I'm a one through 10 is. scale. I mean, to me, no, I didn't, I didn't say that 10, if you gave it a scale of one to 10, and I say that that the greatest movie ever made is a nine point seven five. There will be I, ask Stanley Kubrick if he's ever made a perfect film. Ask David Lean if he ever made a perfect film. Ask ask. Uh, We're not Michael talking Kirk. about their opinions of their own work. That's not the but, point. But they know that there's something they possibly could have done better. Of course, they could have. Every creative person feels that way. And that's so once you, again not the point. It is the point. No, it's not the point. Don't the, don't if, ever give anything a perfect score because you know that the person who created it can tell you that if they had been given an extra three weeks or an extra half a million bucks, they could have made it better. They will tell you it's not perfect. That has absolutely nothing to do with an individual. It has everything to, to do with everything to everything on this planet that's ever happened in so the history somebody, of mankind. So the, so the creative person's the per, the person who created a piece of art. If he wasn't totally happy with it, then neither can you. You can't be happy with it if he wasn't happy with it. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that there's almost any film ever made that you can decide to punch a hole through it if you decide to do it. Yes, of course you can. That's not the right. point. I, that's not the point. I, that's not the point that even made with a one to ten scale. I mean, why are you so so intense because on this you, one to ten scale? My, because once again, if if you're going to eliminate one of the points on the scale then it's not a 10-point scale. The idea of a 10-point scale is not to say that a movie is perfect. The point five or the point seven, the, the point two five that I'm talking about is left is the goal. There's nothing wrong with saying that. Okay, here's the thing. If you decide that, okay, a movie is so good, it's a 9.5, are you giving it that score so that maybe the the filmmaker can strive to somehow make the same film better and up that score to a 10 i mean because the film's made it's done right it's your reaction it's your reaction that we're gauging on a 1 to 10 scale not the quality of the film but your reaction to it have you ever seen a film that you thought was absolutely perfect yes okay name it the wizard of oz Oh hell no! You know what? You know when I oh, thought it was no. perfect. No no, no, no. Listen, do you know when I thought it was perfect? When? When I was a kid. Okay. To me, at that age, that was. I mean, it's a great movie. I mean, I love yeah, it tremendously. Exactly. But... As you get older, you see flaws in it, you see problems, and you see different things. <clears throat> that doesn't make your reaction to it, that experience that you had with that movie, any less than it was then. I I, I don't agree. It so. 
me thinking it was uh, uh, me thinking it was as good as a, a good, as good a film as it could possibly be. I mean, I'm the one with my rating. You're the one with your rating. <laughs> I mean, it's like I'm watching this movie and I see her starting to walk off into the distance. And even as a little kid, I can see where it goes from a road to a painting, a, a beautiful background painting. Do I think that The Wizard of Oz is a masterpiece? Yes, I do. Do I think oh, yes. it is? It is. It is uh, as great as a movie can be. Just about. But the thing mm. is, is that if you sit there and say something is perfect, you've basically stopped everything from ever needing to be created again. Because what you have oh, God, is that's just so no, 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 no. You, you, you got this. You open up this can of worms. You got it now. My attitude is, is if you've made something perfect. You satisfy everybody on the planet at, it, it, because it's perfect, but it's but no, it's not. You, you it, can't. No, 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 no. You've satisfied everybody on the planet. No, there are people who'll never watch that because the kind of, it's the kind of film that wouldn't appeal to them in the first place. There you there go. Are people who are exactly. So once again, we're back to where I keep trying to make you understand a very simple concept, which is. The 1 to 10 scale is not about the qualities of the movie. It's about your opinion of it. Look, there's movies that I love tremendously. My favorite films of all time, the, 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 the 10, 20, 50, 75 films that I think are the greatest films that I've ever loved. But you can still look at them and go, is there room for improvement? But there's room for improvement in any film you have ever seen in your entire life. Full stop. Now so, back to nine point seven five. I mean, what the fuck, dude? You're, you're like you know, you're trying to. You're not going to win this argument. You're not going to get me to change my mind. This was well, the argument just, I was it's having not a couple it's of not weeks an ago. Argument. Everybody, it's not an everybody that I'm thinks I'm dissing their films because I say that no film is perfect. I'm not saying that. It is the uh, it is the effort to strive to make a perfect film that will keep people making films. Look, look. Do you at least understand the point I'm trying to make, which is, it's the the one to ten scale is your opinion. It is not you deciding that the movie could not be improved it is you saying my reaction and that's to this why work i said it's a curve that's why it's a curve you just said it it's not that it's perfect no i did it's, not what when did, did i say anything about it being a curve we're talking about that's what i'm telling you being... i'm trying to give you i'm giving you a way out <laughs> just just listen to me and take it it's a curve <laughs> What I'm saying is, is what's your favorite film of all time? Wizard of Oz? Is that what I said? Is oh, that no, what no, 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 no. It's not my favorite it's, film no, of all time. Just tell oh, me. Oh, it's, it's, it? it's, a, it's a pirate movie called Captain Blood from 1935. Okay. Is it? Okay. So, so uh, uh, a movie you love tremendously, you give it a 10, yeah, yeah. right? Okay. Oh, yeah. But, I definitely give um, it a 10, but it is it is not a perfect movie. As, as a matter of fact, it is it has got flaws in it that are part and parcel of it being a film made in 1935. Yeah. Okay, so the curve thing that I'm talking about works. Shut up. Let it go, dude. Let it go. I mean, you're actually, like, trying to fight. I mean, I can sit there and go, okay, the background lighting doesn't match with the foreground lighting. <laughs> you know, I'm not – it's not that yeah, big yeah, a deal. What I'm saying is I've got tons of movies that I think are masterpieces. That's where I rank it. I don't but give But you would a, give none of them a 10, right? Um, Lawrence of Arabia, 2001 A Space Odyssey. 
I'm trying to think of what other ones. Uh, Casablanca, which is sort of a stereotype for a great film, but it still is a great movie. True, true. Um, uh, and then movies that uh, my personal, one of my all time personal favorite movies is uh, The Sweet Smell of Success, which I think is oh, fucking. That's a, that- that movie is a 10 across the fucking board. Yeah. That's genius filmmaking. Right. And, um, and so if you look at, at 2001, technically there's things that you can say, well, technically it's way better. It's actually turning out to be some of the special effects and turning out to be better than stuff that was made in the eighties and nineties. When you look at the, the special effects difference and stuff like that, but there's still yeah, yeah. things in it where, uh, to me, a ten would have to be all things to all people, and you know that can't yeah, happen. Yeah, no, no film. Yeah, no film can do that. Yeah. And no film can do that. So that's why there's that point two five that I reserve off to the side because it can't be. That's well, not a, at least I argue, at least I argued you down to point two five. That's no, no, no. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's nine point seven five. No, no, I'm taking it as a, I'm taking it as a win. Mark. Oh, you're desperate. I win. Because it's like, it's like, no, you didn't. I never changed my numbers. <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia to me is 9.75. That or, or 9.5. You just called it a 10 five seconds ago. No, I didn't. I, did, I, I asked you the question. Are there any movies that you would give a 10? No, I said it's still, there's that 0.25 that you can't give it. That's what I'm saying. Try to think. <laughs> as Don Rickles would say, you know Lawrence what? I didn't, I didn't know nine. we would end up here. I had no idea we would end up here, but I'm really gratified that we did. Well, but here, <laughs> here's my point. I know that that in the end, the striving for for perfection is something that people will always try to do. I mean, in art, in film, and in painting, and in music, and everything else. But the thing is, is that it's the striving and getting you there. I mean, is Beethoven, uh, you know, a 10? You know, I, I, I don't know. Certain, yeah, certain pieces, yeah, I would say so. Yeah, but, but the thing is, is that it's the striving. So you always leave. It's almost like the old thing of leave the table a little hungry. You know what I mean? It's like when you're done with your dinner, don't. Yeah, but 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 by denying Beethoven a ten, you're not going to get Beethoven to suddenly strive. Well, I would say this: Mozart and Beethoven and a few of those guys are probably the closest that you're going to get to a ten in 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 some things. But there will be people of that caliber that will say things like, "Yeah, but ask them." how they feel about what they're doing. Maybe they did. I don't know. I know this, that anything creative, you're going to go to the originator of it and they're going to go, I wish I could have done this instead of that. I wish I could have done, you know, maybe, or I wish I had an extra month or I wish I had this, or I wish I had this, this color of paint, or I wish I had this, you know, uh, yeah, well, I see, here's the thing. I think that you're, and it's something that I admire about you as a creative person. I think that you're constant striving to improve your own already excellent skills. And I can't believe I'm complimenting you. This makes me nauseous. But <laughs> I think look, that if I that... can say you look like Frank O'Neill, you can at least say something nice about my pictures. <laughs> okay, so I just did. There, you're done. Right, right. That's it. But I would say that I think that that aspect of your personality and your 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 sense of never being completely satisfied with your own abilities 
is bleeding over into something that is connected but not the same. No, I would tell you this right now. If I was standing here in a room with a bunch of people that you admire, a bunch of directors and producers and stuff, they would agree with me. It's like, you know what? We wish we could have. And there's Every nothing... one of them would have a movie that they would say is perfect. Every one of them. Mm. Every stinking one. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you can say that, but uh, luckily you're not. I've heard there. John Car. I've heard John Carpenter talk about Rio Bravo as being the perfect western, a perfect movie. I mean, it's fine. It's a good western. It's not. It, I, there's other movies. It's but not see, as, what, it's but, not but, as but good. But listen, as listen, searchers. listen. For him, for him, it's perfect. For him, it's a ten. Okay, that's fine. I don't agree but with that's, him. But that's which. But of course you don't because you're not him. I, but but that if it was perfect, we'd all agree on uh, it, wouldn't we? Jesus, you're never going to get my point. Okay, I get. No, up. you're never going to get my point. No, that's, I got your that's point. Okay. The point is irrelevant to the what I'm trying to tell to, you. Look, it's what Captain Kirk said. We have to claw and scratch our way up to the surface. Don't you get it? It's not about yeah, of whether course. in the end ultimately. I mean, it's like you know, you've got people that love Folks, Star I'm Trek. I'm sorry that you have to listen to this argument. <laughs> You've got well. This is probably the best part of the show. I mean, who the hell it's, knows? It's, maybe it's one of these things where some people absolutely love a certain uh, type of Star Trek, or some people love, uh, you know, the first three films of Star Wars, or some people love Kubrick, or this or the other. It's, it 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 ultimately comes down to what you feel is. Oh fuck it. <laughs> Mark, no, no, I gotta no, say, this done, is this I'm has been incredibly fun. But yet. I'm not done yet. We, ha- we have to be done. I've got to get some sleep. We've the, got to the, be done. The, here's, here's the point. Somebody said this to me one day, and it wasn't even that long ago. Is that the human factor? The human factor is what makes it impossible to give anything a solid ten. And there's nothing who said, wrong who with said that. that. Who, who said that? I don't know, you? Jesus or something. I don't remember. It was it was Gandhi. Uh, yeah, I don't it think was... anybody said this to you. I think you made this up. No, I didn't. And the thing is, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what you don't get, is that it's okay <laughs> to say that something in this universe is imperfect. You know what's perfect? Math is perfect. That's the one thing you can count Dude, on for I've being already, perfect. I've already told you that no film is perfect, but that's not the point of a 1 to 10 scale. You and I look at the scale differently. I mean, are you telling, are you absolutely telling me that I'm wrong? No, I'm telling you that <laughs> there you go. In, the, in the normal world of thinking about a 1 to 10 scale, eliminating one of the numbers on the scale because you don't think it's deserved by anything ever, anytime at all, means that you're not dealing with a 1 to 10 scale and you're missing the point of the 1 to 10 scale. I did not ever get rid of an entire number off the scale. What I said is the greatest films of all time get up to 9.75. That's what I'm saying. There is no perfect film. My ten Folks, scale write is in still- and tell write in and tell Mark that he is wrong. <laughs> yes, I am now invoking the people who are going to suffer and listen to this batshit crazy conversation. Nah. <laughs> I stand by what I said, and and it's one of which those is what things make, where which is what makes you you, and well, I love you for it. I love you too. Oh, never mind. Mm. But no, I mean it's one of those things where we actually have the same ten scale. Okay, 
I, Mark, I, Mark, we actually back did. to my initial question that touched this off. Oh boy. What was the initial in the, question? In the, rel- First, in the, the, in the realm of spaghetti westerns, in the <laughs> realm of spaghetti westerns, where you know, good, the bad, and the ugly is as good as it gets. Uh, maybe it's that. Yes, it's it's. Oh wait a minute! I have a question. I was say, do, you, do you count, I was do you count say, Once Upon a Time in the West as a spaghetti western? I was going to say it was a ten, but <laughs> hey, hey, that would have been no. I mean, it is it is the pinnacle spaghetti western: the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, uh, just a side note: where uh, do you count Once Upon a Time in the West as a spaghetti western? Because it sure. was shot in America, you do. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was made by an Italian, written yeah, by Italians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where it was shot in in what state was it shot in? Oh, good lord! I think it was shot in. I would have to look it up, but it's like some parts of it were in Utah, some parts of it I think were in uh, uh, Arizona, but I'm not positive. But yeah, it was shot in the United States. Yeah, um, that's news to me. Once upon a time in the West. Yeah, I didn't know that it was shot in the United States. I was oh, watching. Yes, I was watching yeah. one of those ones where we were talking about with um, um, that was also shot in the West. The guy from uh, 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 Trinity. Uh, oh, Terrence Hill. Yeah, Terrence Hill. I was watching one of those recently that was shot in. You could tell it was shot in the West. Beautiful, beautiful landscape. Although, you know, I, I mean, I love the Spanish. The Spanish landscapes too. They yeah, you I know. do too. I mean, they 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 look they look right, and it's very easy for them to fake. It it uh, both fits uh, Mexico it, and the, the desert Southwest. Yeah, it fits. Yeah. It fits with that that grit. Um, but no, I mean, I guess I'd still call yeah, I'd still call uh, Once Upon a Time in the West a spaghetti western. Sure, sure. Huh, okay, okay. Well, it, that's why I mean, I, I guess with some I mean, people, some people go back and forth on that one. I I kind of consider it one too because it was made by you know all the creative people who wrote and directed it were essentially Italian. So okay, so so what about the crew? Was it an uh, American you know, I'm, crew? I'm not. I don't know enough about the the crew on the film to know if they. You know, I'm assuming there were a lot. You know, they. I'm assuming it was a lot of American technicians, but I really don't know. Well, I mean, uh, there, I do not like that film as much as I, I, I love the good, the bad, and the ugly. To me, the good, the I, bad. I go, ba- I go back and forth thinking. Yeah, I know because there the we we yeah. were in a room one night, and you and I, you kind of walked in and said one thing, and I was saying something else, and there was other people oh, that yeah, were sort. I remember that? Yeah. You you remember that? And it was yeah, sort of yeah. like uh, to me, I found that. Um, to me, once upon a time in the West was too. Um, there's a word I'm looking for. I remember Arch? it. Huh? Arch. Arch. Too long. No, too... no, 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 no. Nothing like that. Uh, it was a bit too. Um, is is pretentious the word? It, it went on. It was there was. No, that would be connected to kind of being arch. In other words, it being uh, circ- you know, it kind of circumnavigating uh, the subject matter without uh, getting to the heart of it. Sometimes some some people feel that way. A yeah. little bit, yeah. And yet, uh, to me, the good, the bad, and the ugly is almost shockingly fun. I mean, well, how close to as good as good, the bad, and the ugly is is Django because. Revisiting it for the first time in several years, I'll say I was this: really impressed I, by how good it is. I am not a spaghetti western expert. I'm only very, very well acquainted with the Clint Eastwood one, so so my my uh, knowledge is limited. But here's what I would say: I would say, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is my favorite. Uh, okay. For a few dollars more, is my second favorite. Fistful of Dollars is my next favorite which I, I i think they're all great 
and then I yeah. put Django, and then I put Once Upon a Time in the West. I would we've put. Got it, to, I, uh, we've got to get you some more spaghetti westerns under your belt. Yeah, I mean, it's like, and I and I know I, I, I the other one that I saw that recently that I really enjoyed, and it kind of was. I, I guess you could say it was pretentious, but to me, in the end, ultimately, I felt very passionate about was um, a fistful of dynamite, ducky sucker. Oh, I love that film. I think it's great. I yeah. don't think it's near I don't think it's nearly as good as the movies he made before it, but yeah, it's it really good. It was still good. There was things about it that was very shocking to me at the end that where you go with um oh Jesus, the actor. I always forget his name from Dr. Zhivago. Um uh, uh dark haired. Rod Rod Rob, Steiger. Rod Steiger. I don't know okay. why I forgot his name, but Rod Steiger at the end, he starts off as such a scumbag at the beginning of the film and in the Middle East He's kind of still a scumbag, but by the end of the film, <laughs> by the end of the film, you kind of feel for him. And he watches this guy die. He watches James Coburn die at the end, and it's just sort of like this. He that was when he changed. This character yeah. changed. Like I've got to do this. You know, this is the right thing to do. And I remember not. I remember watching the film and thinking it was good, but I'm like, yeah, ultimately I get the feeling I'm going to kind of walk away from this film. But at the very end, all of a sudden I felt this great surge of emotion that this man had changed and, 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 and this guy that he admired died. And he's sort of like, Oh my God, you know? And I'm like, this is a, this is the arc. This is the story. It, it, it you know, um, so I enjoyed it quite a bit, ultimately. Um, like I say, I think I think we're going to have to press on through the the Corbucci westerns. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. I'm totally totally with it. With its uh, eight point seven five, can't get to nine point seven five. Thing. I don't know what the, what the, <laughs> the hell did the po- we the possibilities? Why in the hell did we run down this sort of mathematical hellhole that you decided to set up? Jesus Christ! I I I I love messing with you. Yeah, Mark. Thank you very much for being here. Jesus, <laughs> I'm gonna go slit my wrist. No, but uh, other than that, <laughs> but anyway, thank you very much for having me on the show. I enjoyed this one. This um, the movie was was really damn good. Um, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it. And um, I, I mean, I, I think this was pretty good. I'd like to see more of this stuff. I really would. Cool, man. Cool. And that's uh, I think that's something we can arrange. Cool. Bye. Why, howdy, partner. How can I help you today? I'm looking for a movie to watch, but I... What in tarnation was that? Never you mind, son. Now let's focus on your needs here. I'm looking for something to watch, but I want something I ain't seen yet. Ooh, watch yourself there, partner. Why, I reckon you've come to the right place. You've come to the place where... The East meets the West. The East meets the West? Where's that and how's that going to help me? Ooh, that was close. You better duck. I don't understand what's going on here. It's like I'm in a place where Kung Fu and Cowboys have combined somehow. Well, that's right, partner. You're going to find some offbeat films here, no doubt about that. Host Rigor is going to take you on a journey to discover not only the hundreds of amazing martial arts films of Hong Kong's Shaw Brothers, but also Italy's spaghetti westerns. 
Spaghetti westerns? Is that some kind of joke? No, sir. Western movies made nitly from the 60s to the 80s are called spaghetti westerns, and that's a fact. You can find the East Meets the West on all the major podcasting apps, as well as havenpodcast.com. Well, thank you kindly, sir. You done settled my entertainment needs, even though it's a tad dangerous in your store. Like I said, go to your podcasting apps or go to havenpodcast.com. The East Meets the West. Your new favorite ranch to hang out at. Hi, I'm Ben from the Diecast Movie Review Podcast, which is done by myself, my sister, and my father, where the genre of the movie is decided by the cast of a die. The categories are horror, drama, comedy, action, sci-fi and fantasy, animation, and musical. Also on occasion, we'll have a special episode dedicated to conversations with creators, directors, actors involved in the production of movies. Join us and see what movie we pick next. Have you ever had a friend that you occasionally just wanted to punch in the face? Oh, not me. Not I. <sighs> Folks, thank you for sticking around and listening to Mark and I discuss Django uh, at length with a few side roads here and there and uh, a never-ending discussion about the 1 to 10 rating scale. Any comments or suggestions that you want to send to the podcast, the email address is thebloodypit at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, it does appear that Mark and I will, um, as long as we can stay in separate states, continue to occasionally podcast together. And we are going to probably walk on down that Sergio Corbucci road with a few more spaghetti westerns in the future. So if you enjoyed this one, and boy is that a big if, tune in the next time when we start talking about uh, probably compañeros, maybe? Not positive. We'll figure it out. We'll talk to you again next time, and I hope everybody's doing well. 